This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 86. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha, and this episode, we are celebrating the 100-year anniversary of Yuri with an awesome interview with Erica Friedman, Yuri manga tastemaker and historian who runs the Okazu blog, the most comprehensive Yuri blog that's been going strong for 17 years. She founded YuriCon, she has her own Yuri Publishing company alc publishing she is the most lowest expert on the subject of yuri and we had an amazing conversation with her where we explore the history of the fandom history of the genre and the state of yuri today and before we get to that we have a couple pieces of news including a few yuri related ones to tie into our discussion yes yeah, so uh why don't we why don't we get started here then yep starting off we have a Yuri manga that is coming to its end soon. And that series is Neo Nakatani's Bloom Into You, which has recently been revealed to be ending in its eighth volume, which will come out this November. So the Bloom Into You series has been one of the most popular fan favorite titles in the last couple of years. I enjoy the series a lot, especially because of its atypical protagonist, you, who starts off as someone who doesn't really have any strong romantic feelings and has to kind of bloom into those feelings as per the title. And it's raised a whole bunch of questions and accolade for potentially having a romantic asexual representation in the form of you but really just at its core it's a great love story between these two girls it has some great other mentor figure characters in the series and it's just a great read and i am excited to see how this series ends i am not caught up with the Seven Seas release, but I've read quite a few volumes, so I'm definitely looking forward to when the final one comes up, just binging it through the ending. And for those of you who watched the anime, which I believe ended around volume 5 in terms of story content, it'll be great to know that there isn't too much more story beyond where the anime ended, but there's still a great ending out there that you can look forward to come this November. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good to hear. Uh, but moving on from that, uh, we have a few pieces of jump news, and uh, unfortunately, we're going to start off with some sad news. Um, so at the time of this recording, uh, the 22nd slash 23rd issue of Shonen Jump has come out, and basically a double issue. Um, and it seems with that issue was published the final chapter of Neolation. Uh, unfortunately, it has been canceled. <laughs> Which makes me very sad. Um, Lum, I don't know if you've... Uh, have, have Have you read the last chapter yet? I have read the last chapter. It is quite sad because they really trick you into thinking they're starting a new arc. we got a new character, this YouTuber girl, and we're going to have like a real cool arc with all the main characters, you know, just solving this new mystery, introducing this character. Things are looking bright for the series, but nope. The very next chapter, that storyline wraps up, and it's just, it ends with a promise that there's adventures for these characters in the future, but nothing conclusive. Which, you know, it's better than if they rush through 
the ending. That's, but that's it's true. so disappointing when you consider everything that could have been. And especially after coming after an incredible backstory arc about Neo that really establishes his motivations and makes him such a compelling character. It's really tragic to see a series that had so much potential be cut so short. Yeah, um, I'm very disappointed about this myself. Like, you know, I'm sure we both heard, you know, rumblings around the uh, around the uh, speculative jump community, as I like to refer to them as. And, uh, you know, I, I had heard rumblings about Neolation ending, and but I didn't want to believe it. But I mean... Based off the TOC, which, you know, we've talked about before how, like, that's not always the best indicator of, like, how well a series is doing, but, you know, a lot of people assumed it wasn't doing well, and I I guess they were right, because obviously it, it's ended, and I don't know, I, I I have a lot of mixed feelings on, on the series overall, like, like, I mean, obviously, like, I enjoyed it, um, it it's just kind of sad that, like, we... Uh, because, you know, I, I agree that, like, you know, I'm glad they didn't, like, just kind of rush through an ending, but at the same time, like, it really it really feels like they, they wanted to start a new arc, and then literally, like, right after the second to last chapter was published, that that's when they were told, okay, we're ending it next chapter. Like, it, it really feels like it kind of drops the ball, unfortunately, so, I don't know, w one outcome is better than the other, but I, I don't know. It, it really feels like, uh... And now our journey has just begun kind of endings. Uh pretty much. That, you know, uh I'm not I'm I'm not really a fan of either, but I like I think overall, like, you know, I, I like if you couldn't tell on past episodes of the podcast, like we both really enjoyed reading this week to week. And um I I would still say out of the out of like the out of the three that came out a couple a couple months back at this point, like you know, this th this was my favorite to to read weekly. You know, the more I kept reading, but you know, so 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 it's unfortunate that we're not going to get any more of this. I'm I'm hoping that Hirao and Yoda come back for maybe another series because I would def like uh, Neolation was good enough to where I would read more stuff from them. So yeah, this was their first serialized work, so hopefully they'll get a second chance in not too short a time. Mm -hmm. But Unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot of series end alongside Neolation in the coming weeks. Higuma, I am going to guess, is going to end in the very next chapter when that comes out on May 12th. And then I'm expecting Food Wars and David to also kind of die. So it's going to be a big time of change over in Shonen Jump. But that's because there's a whole swat of new series that's going to be arriving over the course of the next month. Yeah, so so let's talk about those. And uh, you know, the 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 biggest one I think we'll get out of the way first because uh on May 12th, we are going to be getting the first chapter of uh, Masashi Kishimoto's newest series, Samurai 8: The Tale of Hachimaru, uh which uh for those who don't know, uh has a preview chapter over at at shonenjump.com and the Shonen Jump app, um which I I unfortunately didn't get I didn't get a chance to take a look at. Um, I'll have to take a look at that. A it's just later. three, four pages of the main character, like giving his whole motivation, <laughs> like what he really wants. It's it's like just dialogue. I mean, there's no nothing happens. So it's, as a preview, it didn't really make me want to read more of the series because it didn't really 
make me interested in the character. It just was establishing motivation. But I am interested in reading the series because it is Masashi Kishimoto's Thanks Rick. But it's like, as a preview chapter, I don't think it really sold me on uh, the series being an exciting time, necessarily. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that's fair. Um, but, I mean, n- nonetheless, I'm, you know, I think it's safe to say we've both been pretty excited about Samurai 8, you know, ever since it was announced at uh, Jump Festa a couple months back. So, um I'm I'm definitely excited to read this. Um, apparently, I mean, you know, in case it wasn't obvious, like Viz will obviously be simul publishing this uh, in English, and apparently the first chapter is going to be 72 pages, so it's definitely going to be quite the debut. So I'm I'm very excited to read that. We will definitely be talking about that on the show uh, when we find the time to do so here. Uh, but along with that series, uh, we're going to be getting a new round of new series. Uh, which unfortunately it doesn't look like there's a lot of info on these on these new series so uh, we we really only have like the i guess the key visual for all these to kind of go off of but uh it looks like the first series coming after a samurai 8 uh will be coming in issue 25 on may 20th uh with kentaro fukuda's futari no taisei um which for those who may not remember uh they actually had a series in jump uh, back in 2015 with Devilly Man. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, anybody remembers that at all. Um, I do. I enjoyed it. But the art style, at least in terms of his key visual, looks very different than that of Devilly Man. Yeah, Devilly Man was, uh, if I remember correctly, was more of a gag manga, I think. So it definitely looked like, you know, a more gag kind of manga, whereas this looks very, uh, uh, very Bishonen almost. If that if that's the right word I want to use. Um Well, just based on the key visual, I wanna note that it looks like Vitari no Taisei might be a go or shogi manga because I'm seeing like some sort of game piece in one of the main characters' fingers. So I would expect that to be a a shogi or go manga. I can't really tell what he's holding exactly, but it actually it looks more like a shogi tile. So that's what I would expect that to be about. Okay, yeah, now that I'm zooming in, yeah, that that's what it definitely looks like. Um, and then uh, next up we have Kento Terasaka's Beast Children, which will be in issue 26 on May 27th. And uh, I think this one is a little more obvious that uh, it looks like it's going to be a rugby manga, which I think is interesting. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm sure there have been and they were probably like, you know, canceled or ended prematurely. And I just don't know it, but uh, I'm not sure if Jumps ever had like a rugby manga. Like I know rugby manga exist, obviously, you know, because you have stuff like All Out. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, that's really interesting. I I'll be def- definitely checking that out. I saw Maxi on Twitter tweet out that there has been a rugby manga in Jump before, but it's been a couple of decades. So okay, this is uh, the first one in quite a while. So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, of, of course, Maxi would know. <laughs> um, but uh, and then uh, last but not least, we have uh, Tokyo Shinobi Squad from Yuki Tanaka and Kenta Matsura, uh, which will be in issue 27th on June 3rd. And uh, judging by the key visual, you know, this this will probably be another action series. Uh, she basically got a guy with a sword and he looks badass. Um, I can't tell... From the visual, I'm kind of zooming. I don't know if he's like charging up his charging up his uh, his key attack or something, but uh, 
doing some sort of ninja sign, I guess. Something like that. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure that'll probably be pretty cool. Um, again, not, not really much to go off of except for key visuals. Uh, we don't really have any, like, you know, plot synopses or whatnot. And, and even if we did, they'd be, like, a sentence long. So, you know, um... I don't know. I I think these could be, like so far I'm I'm interested enough, but nothing really like stands out to me so far in terms of like what I'm looking forward to like checking out the most. Yeah. I mean it's hard when you only have key visuals and you don't really even have a synopsis and you have to interpret what the series is about from the visual. Mm-hmm. Um but uh I don't know. I'm I'm hoping that uh Viz picks all of these up because uh these all look like, you know, I I think I think they're worth you know picking up and checking out, and uh, I'm again I'm sure we will talk about the first chapters of all of these, you know once we have the chance to on the podcast in in the future. Most definitely, but our last piece of serialization news here is, is a series returning in a new official sequel, and that series is Blade of the Immortal, which is receiving a sequel called Blade of the Immortal Bakumatsu Arc. Which will not be drawn by the original creator, but will be drawn by Kenji Takigawa, who is writing the story, and Ryu Suneba, who is drawing the art. Uh, Samurai is credited for collaboration, but he is not involved uh, in, in terms of like the actual writing or drawing of it. But, you know, there, it's going to launch in the May issue of Monthly Afternoon Magazine on May 25th. Uh, and it's going to be about Manji in the Bakumatsu period, which is uh, like in the 19th century, whereas the original manga was in the Edo period, so this is like afterwards, and it's going to follow Manji, who is in a life of seclusion in the Tosa domain, but then he heads to the capital, and he confronts the strongest warriors of the time, including Sakamoto Ryoma, and Okita Soji, Kamdo Isami, Hijikata Toshio, you know. All those guys you know from Gintama. <laughs> <laughs> and various other anime, I'm sure. Yeah, so there's a couple preview pages. It looks, you know, pretty cool. Like, uh, the artist got the action sensibilities of Samura down. I don't know if there's really necessary a need for a sequel to Blade of the Immortal because all the themes and the character arc of Manji was kind of complete at the end of that series. So, like, there's really nothing for the sequel to do to explore the character other than to show him fight dudes, which I think can be fun, but it's like the, the appeal of Blade of the Immortal was kind of the character arcs and, like, that struggle with self that Manji was going through. But, you know, I like Lady Immortal a lot. If this gets licensed and brought over, I'll definitely give it a read. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with all that serialization news out of the way, we should get into some licensing news. And, uh, well, I guess, uh, sort of. So, uh, we, we didn't cover it on the show, uh, but it looks like back on, uh, back in March... Uh, the April issue of Kodansha's monthly shonen series published a new series from Suzuhito Yasuda, uh, who is the author of Yozakura Quartet, uh, which is uh, licensed by Kodansha and uh, is still being released by them. The last time I checked, um, I think they were. I think uh, I saw that Yozakura Quartet was like originally published by Delray for a couple volumes and then got dropped. I think. Um, and then Kodansha basically picked it back up to continue its release at some point. Uh, but it looks like, uh, as, as far as this new series goes, uh, 
It is called uh, Boots Leg and is apparently a dark fantasy type of manga. And so uh, that's being published monthly. Uh, but it looks like recently uh, Kadansha has published the first chapter of Boots Leg in English. Uh, so you can basically go to their website and check out the first chapter. And, uh, you know, as to whether this is a cyber pub or not, uh, we don't really know because basically uh, Kadansha... Uh, they didn't really state if they were going to continue publishing it in digitally or in print, uh, but has asked readers to quote unquote stay tuned for more boots like updates on the website. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, I'm assuming this is probably maybe going to get a simul pub, probably, or at the very least, maybe they're like looking into it. I'm not sure, or or maybe they'll just do straight volume releases. I'm, I'm I don't really know, but uh, you know, if you're a fan of Yokozura Quartet or you're just a fan of Yasuda in general, uh, definitely go check this out. It's it's free. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll probably leave a link to it in the show notes here. But uh, yeah, um, I'm not really familiar with Yasuda's work. I've never, honestly, I hadn't even heard of Yosakura Quartet until like just recently. Cause I think uh, like, like at, at the time of this recording, I think Kodansha's is having a, a throwback uh, sale on, uh, on the series or whatnot uh, digitally at least. Um, but uh, I don't know. Uh, if this turns out to be a simulpub, uh, I guess that means we'll probably cover it on the show here at some point. Uh, yeah. Or, or or maybe we'll maybe we'll do the first chapter regardless. I'm not sure. Um, we'll, we'll wait and see what happens with that. But, uh, you know, like I said, if you're a fan of their works, uh, you know, maybe it's, pro- it's probably worth checking out. So. Yeah, the art and character design looks very cool, and I have always had an interest in reading Yozakura Quartet, so I'm looking forward to seeing what this series is about and if it'll become cyber-published over here. Mm-hmm. All right, and then uh, next up in terms of licensing news, uh, Yen Press has basically licensed a manga connected to the Sekiro video games, uh, called Sekiro Side Story Hanbei the Undying, uh, from Shin Yamamoto, uh, which is uh, you know, like I said, a a manga adaptation of Sekiro. I I can't say I'm I'm super familiar with uh with Sekiro, so I can't comment too much on with, with too much authority on what the, what this manga is is about. But uh, you know, if you're a fan of Sekiro, uh, and you like the video game, uh. You know, maybe you can go check this out. Uh, I don't think there's a release date for this uh, for this title uh, from Yen Press just yet. But uh, just like what we talked about with uh, Persona Five an episode or two ago, you know, if you're a fan of the game, you know, I'm sure the manga's worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And now we'll move on to some novel licenses, starting off with quite a few from J Novel Club. First off, they've licensed middle-aged businessman makes a name for himself in another world thanks to goddess power by Sai Sumimori and illustrator Ichirushi, which is about a middle-aged dude whose life completely changes after he meets a goddess, and so he moves up to corporate ladder thanks to her help, he gets married, he's got three daughters, and then one day all of his family and him are transported to another world, and there he must find a way to provide for his family. And so he joins an adventurer's guild and uses his business skills to uh, make himself very successful in this new fantasy world. And, you know, also using the power he has in the goddess. No definite release date for this yet, but uh, Jane Noble Club said they'll start releasing the series soon. 
The next series they've got on the docket is Ryotohori and Bob's Record of Wartenia War, which is about a high schooler adept in martial arts transported to another world because the people who summoned him cite that when those summoned kill another living being, they can absorb a fraction of their strength and make it their own. But because the Empire is corrupt and wants to strengthen themselves by foul means, Ryoma is consumed by hatred and slays an important member of the court. And then he escapes the Empire's borders while keeping his identity a secret. But then he's accosted by two sisters, one golden-haired, other silver-haired. And it's a meeting of fate that sets gears of fate into motion. And then it's the story as the curtain is rising on the record of the wars of a young supreme ruler in this other world fantasy. And so the first volume, the first part of the first volume, is now available on J Novel Club for free. And I guess it'll be regularly serialized coming soon. But after that, we've got Side by Side Dreamers by Iyori Miyazawa which is about a girl who can't sleep thanks to insomnia, but then she meets another girl who can put anyone to sleep as her lover in a dream. And then when her senpai sees potential in her, she ends up joining them and their group of sleepwalkers. And it turns out that there's a battle that's been unfolding between the Suiju, which are beings that possess people's spirits and line of sleep, and these sleepwalkers who have the power to move freely in their dreams. And so sleeping together as a team, she and her newfound group are doing a job uh, hunting the Suiju until an unexpected darkness comes along. And so the question is, will the girls be able to defend humanity's sleep? And so the first part of the first one is now available on J-Double Club for free with regular serialization coming soon. Next up, we've got Seriously Seeking Sister, Ultimate Vampire Princess Just Wants Little Sister. Plenty of service will be provided. That sounds like an ad. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> sounds like a wanted ad you'd feel, you find in like a newspaper. And this comes to us by Hero No Name and uh, CISO. And this is about a vampire princess who goes to the human world to find a little sister. And this series is coming soon. Self-explanatory. I mean, yeah. I mean, again, it's basically... She basically posted a wanted ad. Uh, that's the title. <laughs> and then we've got... And this is a big one. This is a classic one here. We've got Hiroyuki Morioka and Toshiro Ono's Crest of the Stars and Banner of the Stars... The classic series set in a far distant future where mankind has traversed the stars, settled distant worlds, but now the advanced technology has made it so that space nations cannot entirely shed their human nature. And so the main character finds out the hard way, as a child, uh, the cruelties of the world when its home world is conquered by the powerful Ob Empire who are the self-proclaimed king of the stars and rulers of vast swaths of the known universe. And then as a newly appointed member of his world's imperial aristocracy, Jinto must learn to forge his own destiny in the wider universe while bearing the burdens he never asked for, caught between his surface-dweller lander heritage and the Byzantine culture of the Ab, of which he is now nominally a member. And then a chance meeting with the brave and lonely apprentice star pilot Lafayette aboard the patrol ship Golzalut will lead them both headfirst on a path of galaxy 
spanning intrigue and warfare that will forever change the fate of all humankind. And the first part of the first volume is now available on Jable Club for free, with more parts available for members. And Jay Neville Club plans to release this series in print in triple volume hardcover omnibus edition starting in 2020. And this is a licensed rescue following Tokipop's previous attempts to publish the series way back in the day, but Jay Neville Club's release will feature all new translations. And so if you were a fan of the classic series that was adapted into anime and, you know, really want to check out the original source material, now you've finally got a great release to check out. But J Noble Club has also announced that it will release Ascendance of a Bookworm in print starting this fall, and an Arc Demon's Dilemma, How to Love Your Elf Bride in print this fall or winter. And the company is also going to release Full Metal Panic and Triple Volume Hardcore Omnibus Editions starting in late 2019 or early 2020. And will release Animeta and Marginal Operation in print either later this year or early next year. So there's a lot to look forward to from J Novel Club and for fans of light novels. Mm, yeah, J-, J Novel Club has got it going on, that's for sure. They got a lot of stuff coming out. Mm-hmm. But J Novel Club isn't the only contender in the light novel game because Cross Infinite World is also releasing a new light novel coming soon called Another World Zombie Apocalypse Is Not My Problem by Haru Yayari and Fuyuki. And this is a spoof on zombie apocalypse and isekai stories where a High schooler wakes up in a post-apocalyptic world overrun by zombies, and he thought that the poisonous swamp surrounding the small island would protect them from the drama, but, you know, they just saw zombies, and so they just push it away, and then, by pushing it away, it turned into a living, breathing, not-so-dead human. So he realizes that he has the power to purify zombies, and now he's supposed to save this undead world from the zombie apocalypse, but he's not really into that. He's like, great, this is not my problem. Uh, what? Responsibility. Saving the world. Not my bag, man. So that sounds like a fun series, a fun parody of zombie and easy guys stories as the tagline stated. And yeah, uh, I'd be curious to check this one out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually sounds pretty neat. Um, but yeah, I guess that's about it for licensing news. A lot of stuff coming up like always. Um, and now we'll just move on to some miscellaneous pieces of news. And, uh, we're going to start off with some, uh, Eisner news. Uh, so, you know, those are coming up and, uh, we basically have nominations for, uh, for their manga category, which they don't call the manga category because they're the Eisners. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, as far as best U.S. edition of international material Asia goes, we have uh, Abra from Sutomo Nihei, as published by Viz Media, uh, translated by Sheldon Zerka. Uh, and then we have uh, Dead Dead Demons, Dead Dead Destruction uh, from Inio Asano, also published by Viz, translated by John Wery. Uh, Laid Back Camp by Afro, uh, published by Yen Press, translated by Amber Tomositis Satius. I'm sorry if I mispronounce your names. And then we have Tokyo Tower Rebel Girls from Akiko Higashimura as published by Kodansha Comics. Uh, no translator credit there, unfortunately. 
And then, as for outside of manga, uh, we have a fifth nomination for uh, Nie Jun's My Beijing, Four Stories of Everyday Wonder. Um, and uh, it looks like, as far as other stuff goes, uh, Junji Ito's Frankenstein has been nominated for Best Adaptation from Another Medium, as well as Dark Horse's release of uh, Yoshitaka Amano, the illustrated biography, Beyond the Fantasy, uh, by Forent uh, Jorge's. Uh, has been nominated in the best comics related category. Um, so a lot of really interesting nominations. Uh, I'm really glad uh, Higashimura's uh, Tokyo Tower Rebel Girls is, uh, has been nominated. Uh, I'm personally really gunning for that just because I, I want Higashimura to get some uh, recognition. Yep, I'm in the same boat. I really would love to see that win the award, but all of the titles nominated are really great. So. I would be pleased with any of them receiving it. But it's also worth noting that Akira Toriyama and Naoki Urasawa are among the 16 people nominated for entry into the Will Heisner Comic Awards Hall of Fame. And so if they are inducted, they'll join the ranks of other previous Japanese inductees like Osama Tezuka, Kazuo Koike, Gouseki Kojima, Katsuhiro Otomo, and of course, most recently, Rumiko Takahashi. So here's hoping that they get inducted as well. Oh man, I mean, I mean, if, if there if there if there were if there was anybody who deserved it, it's definitely those two. Like, come on, please. Why is Toriyama not there already? That that's my question. Who knows? Uh, I don't know. It's it it's not it's not like he's made anything that people like or anything. <laughs> um, I, I think he made a thing called Dragon Ball. I'm not sure. Um, I don't. I don't know what Dragon Ball is. Um, I hear it's not that great. Um, <laughs> uh, shade aside, just kind of moving on to our next piece of news here. So, uh, some really interesting statistics have come out from uh, Shueisha in particular, as it pertains to their uh, magazines, including Weekly Shonen Jump. Uh, I guess apparently uh, Shueisha released their Media Guide 2019 just recently. And, uh, yeah, which basically it contains, uh, various information about their different magazines, uh, for advertisers, essentially. And, uh, like I said, the, the guide lists, uh, basically print circulation numbers and demographic informations for their magazines. And so, uh, just to talk about show to jump here for a sec. So, uh, at this point in time, according to the media guide, uh, weekly show to jump has a average circulation of 1,740,000. Um so obviously it's uh it, it's a bit down from uh, from their previous stats and you know uh, unfortunately is like nowhere near their their heyday back in the 90s obviously but uh you know it's still I'd still say you know a million is still pretty good all things considered. And uh, additionally the guide announced that Shonen Jump Plus the both the website and the app has uh, 2.4 million weekly active users, and that the official website for Weekly Shonen Jump uh, gets 2.4 million page views per month and has 880,000 unique visitors per month, which I think is pretty good. The guide did not list uh, any gender demographics for Shonen Jump in particular because, you know, why would you? Uh, that's not that that's not of interest or anything. Um, hmm. The, but the guide does provide a breakdown for reader demographics in terms of age. And uh, according to the guide, uh, 27.4 readers are 25 years old or older. 
So personally, I feel very vindicated at the moment. <laughs> um, with uh, 25.8% being 19 to 24 years old, 17.6% being 16 to 18 years old, 16.4% uh, being 13 to 15 years old, 9.6% uh, being 10 to 12 years old, and 3.2% being 9 years old or younger. The majority of Shonen's readership are above the age of 18. They are adults. There's actually not a whole lot of young kids who read Shonen Jump if only 3.2% are 9 or younger. So it really is, like, you got a lot of teens reading Jump, but the vast majority of the audience is actually adults. At least 20-somethings. So so that witty uh, social commentary from Gintoki is uh, no longer really relevant. <laughs> um which is uh which is interesting um i don't know uh, are, do we do we want to go over any of the other magazines at all we will go over jump square because jump square publishes stuff that people recognize like blue exorcist and Sir after the end so jump square's circulation is 210,000 including the digital editions so that's a little bit of cheating there. I know Maxi too shaded that on Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, I saw their, that. the Jump Squared readership is 30.2% people aged 25 to 29 years old, 26.4% people aged 20 to 24 years old, 25.2% people aged 15 to 19 years old, and 18.2 people aged 30 to 34. So again, the majority of Jump Square readership is above the age of 20. And we do have gender demographics broken down for here. We have 67.5% of readers being male and 32.5% of readers being female. So we got a two to one ratio, male to female readership there. Mm. Yeah, that that's, uh, I'm going to call bullshit on that because it's like, well, not, not on the statistics. I should probably make myself clear. Uh, I don't know. I, I just think it's bullshit that we have. We have gender demographics for the other magazines and not jump. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like that, that's that. Those are those are stats that I would legitimately like to know. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of annoyed that they didn't give those out. Yeah, I mean, there's also not any gender demographics for the girls and women's magazines. Though looking at the numbers for those, it's also very disappointing to me that like the magazine with the highest circulation in girls and women's magazines is like still less circulation than most of these male magazines for Shueisha. Like they got ultra jumpy, but it's still below everything else. And that really disappoints me. Mm, yeah. I mean, that, that is, that is pretty disappointing, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But Shonen Jump is by far and away the most popular magazine published by Shueisha. And uh, the readership the reflects that in the fact that it is like, audiences that are not just kids or one set of demographic it's like a very broad range of people i want to believe that there's a conspiracy where like where where it's like maybe they don't want to reveal like uh gender statistics for a jump in particular because they don't want to admit that uh maybe a lot of women read their magazine but they did just a couple of years ago we got like a demographic breakdown for the series that were running in Jump back in, I guess, 2012 or 2013. Haikyuu was running at the time, so that had been after Haikyuu came out. But we saw that 
there is a substantial female readership. There, we know that some series have a majority female readership. One Piece being one of those series. So, like, they've revealed this demographic information before. I don't know why there's an oversight this time. I don't know, but ho- hopefully it won't be next time. Because, like I said, like I-, I feel like that would have been the most interesting thing to look at. And it's just not there. So Yeah. But moving on, we've got a new contest for prospective mangaka out there from Comic Festa's Anime Zone. And uh, they are holding a new context to find the next big sexy hit on par of their previous works. And so they've opened up the Anime Ka Kakuyuaku Isorio Waku Sodatsu Manga Taisho Contest for both amateur and pro creators, where hopefuls can submit 16-page or higher original works in the Teens Love, Boys Love, or Dan Seimuke in the male readers' genres. And at least four pages of the submitted work must be completed, but the rest can be in the drafting stages, and the winner of the contest will have their work turned into an anime. Well, the top three winners will receive prize money and have the chance to have their work sterilized. And so entries are going to be accepted from August the 28th and all the way until the winner will be announced on November 1st. So if you want to draw some steamy manga uh, and get your starting industry there, uh, you can enter this contest. And then our final piece of news, and as it turns out, serendipitously enough, it is another piece of Yuri news, though this one leaves a little bit of a bittersweet taste in my mouth, because Digital Manga has announced that they are getting into the Yuri Dojin game by creating a new label they were launching on May 1st called Lilika. Once again, specializing in Yuri Doji manga that they're going to acquire from self-published Japanese creators. The store for this is going to launch on May 1st. And this is going to be, I guess, a counterpart to their Yaoi section that they have. But basically, they've licensed two titles that we know of so far. The Rain and the Other Side of You by Moto Momono, which is about a 27-year-old junior high teacher who has never dated a man in her life, but while tutoring one of her students, she suddenly finds herself being kissed on the cheek by Aki Monorami, and then uh, she confesses that in order to be alone with her, she purposely failed the test, and so confused as to why her student would do such a thing, she decides to visit her house to find out the ugly truth. So this is like a teacher in love with her student kind of story. Which, uh, eh, not, not so into. But then we've got Lily Fairy Tale, Little Mermaid, and Hansel and Gretel by Mintaro, which is about a fairy tale boarding school where Marie the Little Mermaid meets Gretel from Hansel and Gretel, and immediately feels they are destined to be together, and believes that Gretel is the key to break the curse that took her voice away on the day her parents got divorced. So she tries her best to become friends with Gretel, but things take an unexpected turn. And this one sounds kind of more up my alley in terms of playing with fairy tale tropes and also kind of two people working through problems uh, that, you know, rooted in some real emotional baggage. But either way, I would not trust uh, DMP because it's been going out. For a long time, but especially recently in the announcement of this news, just how terrible their business practices are, how exploitative they are of the people they employ, 
And the fact that they are licensing Dojin from self-published creators, you can't help but wonder that they are taking advantage of independent artists and their works. Because they also probably can't go through any official publishers because they burned their bridges and so now they have to go to independent artists and who knows if they'll do right by them with their contracts. So DMP, there was a time where I was looking forward to their Kickstarter because I thought, oh, they're going to bring back all the tests over. And now, you know, it, you more stuff has been revealed about them or people have been speaking out and they're a very shady company and uh, they are not to be trusted. But hopefully... In response to this, there will be a more reputable publisher who will also get into the Yuri Dojin game and, you know, we can trust the work that they put out and that they'll be treating the people they work with fairly. But that is a very uh, important piece of Yuri news. It's definitely something very relevant to the industry, to Yuri being brought over. And the fact that we are getting a new imprint that is specializing in Yuri Doji in particular, really does show how far the Yuri fandom has come and the market that there is for Yuri. And to explore that even further, to go deeper beyond into the history of Yuri, how it's come to this point, how the fandom has evolved over the past 100 years since the genre's inception, let us now dive into our interview with Erica Freeman. Twenty nineteen is truly an exciting year to be a manga fan. Just a few years ago, in twenty seventeen, we were celebrating the one hundred year anniversary of anime, and now, two years later, we are celebrating the birth of one of anime's most defining and popular genres. We are of course are talking about Yuri. Twenty nineteen marks the one hundred year celebration, the centennial anniversary of of Yuri, 100 years of girls' love set in all girls' schools with a beautiful black-haired senpai and short-haired blonde co-eyes, all the tropes we love to watch people in love and all those stories. And joining us today to talk about the history of Yuri, where it all originated, how it has developed over the years, and the story of the fandom, is Yuri manga tastemaker and historian, self-proclaimed Yuri Bodhisattva, Erica Friedman. <laughs> Hello. Every time somebody interests me, I start laughing. Sorry. Hello, I'm Erica Friedman. So nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me today. It's awesome to have you here, Erica. You are the foremost historian and knowledge person <laughs> on the subject of Yuri. You have written extensively on the topic on your blog, Okazu, for 16 years. Absolutely. Actually, um, 17. 17 years, and we are going to, this week, get our 4,000th post on Okazu. That is incredible. And in addition to that, you are also the founder of YuriCon, and you even have your own Yuri Manga publisher, uh, ALC Publishing. Correct. Yeah, we published eight books between 2003 and 2010. We were the person who laid the foundation for a lot of the Yuri Manga uh, market here in America. And then we, I knew when I started that I would never be, I wouldn't be in it for the long haul because I knew companies with bigger 
pockets, deeper pockets and more money and more con connections would come in. But we definitely started to lay down the bricks for the road that became the Yuri Manga market here in the United States and North America. So I'm very, very pleased to have been part of that bit of the history. YuriCon was founded uh, originally in, in as an online group in 2000, and we did some live uh, events. We did uh, gatherings in um, three-day events and one-day events, and we even did an event in Tokyo, and we did that until I got bored with that. And now we've shifted into doing um, research and running uh, lectures and doing speaking worldwide and particularly at universities and film groups and, and organizations and uh, we've got a lot of stuff coming up for 2019 because as you say it's it's the anniversary of the yuri genre yuri manga mm -hmm. didn't really exist till the 1970s but the yuri genre i date from 1919 to and so 2019 is the 100th anniversary and we have a lot planned for this year so it's a it is as you say a very very exciting year and i'm just i'm so pleased to be part of this exciting growing and very vital uh industry and in, in both japan and america most definitely there's an incredibly passionate community around yuri and you're at the center of it being the organizer of all these incredible events yeah um it's uh it's kind of a <laughs> I don't want to make it, I don't want to be, I don't want to joke about it, but it, and to some extent, <laughs> when you create a community, when you're the first person to really sit down and create a community, it's easy to be at the center of all the communities that's kind of, you know, or, or spore off of it. Um, so uh, there's always been a lot of interest in Yuri, but it's changed a lot over the years. When I first started getting into Yuri, there was um, basically two sets of fans. There was, uh, you know, fans who, thought well yay lesbian porn and uh <laughs> and because of the nature of that particular fandom they tended to assume that their interests and their uh requirements for what yuri is which was porn for them to uh pleasure to was the only kind of yuri and the only yuri and everybody else was wrong and they were wrong and they were wrong from the beginning and i spent a couple of years uh showing them they were wrong and showed them that that women have always been involved in Yuri. And so Yuri, and this is the important part, Yuri is for men, for women, for straight people, for queer people, for anybody who loves Yuri. And just like any other genre, it's, there's, there's really, there's should be no walls or boundaries for fans to enjoy a thing. And anybody, and let me just say this plain out, anybody who says, well, Yuri is for not you or any, any organization or any um, genre. If somebody says, well, you know, BL isn't for you or, or action isn't for you. Well, you know what? They're talking out their ass. All mm -hmm. of this stuff is entertainment for anyone who wants to be entertained by it. So why shouldn't this be the most inclusive thing in the world? And so when I was getting into manga back in the day, I'd been collecting comics since I was a child, since I was seven years old. And so I was used to kind of the comic book guy attitude. Um, and they were always wrong. I mean, it was always wrong. You know, <laughs> they were, there was never a time when anybody who was gatekeeping entertainment was correct and uh, so I entered uh, manga and I started being paying attention to things like Sailor Moon and girly stuff and you got those those people who decided to gatekeep well Yuri is for you because it's not it's, you know yeah it's, it's about lesbian sex but it's not for lesbians I'm like you know how wrong that sounds it doesn't even sound like you're speaking English yeah um, hey 
this story is completely about you, but it's not for you, is not the most idiotic thing. That is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. So I said, well, hey, you know what? That's ridiculous. And because I wasn't 12, I was, you know, in my late 30s and no longer had to put up with bullshit. Uh, and I wasn't really good at it when I was young either. Um, I kind of said, hey, that's bullshit. How about we just have our fun over here and you can go do whatever you want over there. And so I started to create my own group. And I said, anyone who wants to talk about Yuri is welcome. You can mm -hmm. be anything. You can be straight, you can be gay, you can be man, woman, you can be, you know, gender queer. We didn't, when I created this 20 years ago, like there wasn't really, we weren't doing the non-binary gender queer yet. Now it's in existence. You're trans, you're not. It doesn't matter. Because what you get out of your entertainment is always personal. And so right. the most important thing is to say we're all fans of this genre, but it doesn't matter why we are all fans, what we're getting out of it as fans or what the point of that is. So mm -hmm. when I started writing Okazu, I was doing it because I was planning Yurikon in uh, a physical real life Yurikon event in 2003. So in 2002, I started to talk about what that takes uh, because a lot of people who, um, who go to, events don't realize how much it takes, how much work running an oh, event yeah. takes. They tend to think that like they show up and ta-da, it's all done. <laughs> so I started writing about all the details. It had to have taken in months of planning in advance. Years. 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 Exactly. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of people organizing, a lot of volunteer time. And um, and then people show up and they want to be entertained. And I said flat out, you know, if you're coming to Yurikon, you're not going to be entertained you are the entertainment so come with your passion with your amusing stories with your interest join the panels be part of the con if you're just coming to have entertainment beamed in your head you can go away like it's not who this group is because you know at that point the large cons had already been well established if you just want to go and, mm -hmm. and get people talking at you and watching events and watching anime or whatever there's plenty of that out there you don't mm -hmm. need to come to my event. So I always wanted my group to be very participatory. And I think over the years, it's been full of really engaged, interesting, fun, generous, kind people as a result. Mm -hmm. A community full of passionate and proactive fans that yeah. are like actively making art or expressing their love for Yuri. Yes. And sharing them with other people. Yes, exactly. And that that you actually just nailed exactly what I was going to say. One of the things that I said right from the beginning, the thing that I wanted YuriCon to most represent was, here's a place where you can do that thing. Just do the thing that you said you were going to do. Write that story, draw that comic, uh, make that video, and we will love it. We, you know, it doesn't matter. We will love that you did that work. And we will enjoy it and we will celebrate it. And that is exactly what we called YuriCon, a celebration of Yuri. Mm -hmm. So that's that's pretty much it. And I'm curious, like, what was the first YuriCon like in terms of kind of the events or like the community involvement? Like, what were some of the things at YuriCon that you know, the community really got behind and like has lasted to this day. Well, we did, a, we did a lot and we did some things kind of ahead of the curve and that's been a problem my whole life. <laughs> I always do things <laughs> ahead of the curve and then somebody goes, well, that's a really great idea and then runs with it, which is fine. I don't consider that a problem. Um, we ran an academic track and we were one of the very first conventions ever in anime or manga to run an academic track. So we had academics coming in and reading their papers and presenting their thoughts about things. 
we did things we had normal fan panels of course um we also had uh and this was really sort of unique we really focused on queer content mm -hmm. now back in the day that was a lot harder there weren't a lot of yuri anime at all um the little bit that existed often was a bit of okazu in the middle of a porn story or at the beginning of a porn story. Um, the same thing was true with BL. I mean, so you had like, you know, Boku no sexual harassment was what passed for BL. You know, <laughs> wow. it wasn't like there was a lot of good uh, BL, but we were showing some BL just to talk about the queer content. And mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing was, I think we were ahead of the curve on that as well. We were saying this is not, yes, that Yuri is not lesbian, like they're not equivalent. It's a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap, but they're not equivalent. But LGBTQ content exists in Yuri and BL and trans narrative manga, even when it was kind of sucky back in the day, um, because a lot of it at, the, at that time was really meant to be a comedy, which was really sort of dire. Um, and then, mm. and we were talking about how you could still find queer resonance in stuff that wasn't necessarily meant to be in any way queer. And so that was something we did. And I think that's really been the thing that we've always built this around. And one of the, the goals I had originally back in the day was to build a bridge between Japanese uh, otakuras, uh, otaku lesbians and American otaku lesbians. And I think we've, we've very, very successfully done that over the years with a lot of connections and I've gone over there and met folks and they've come over here and, and we've just really made that, that connection where there's these two groups of engaged queer folks within Yuri mm -hmm. who want to reach out past those boundaries. And, you know, it's so much easier these days. I mean, back in the day, you know, we had a couple mailing lists and email and stuff and, and websites. Now, uh, social media has changed everything. It's just completely, Twitter has completely broken those barriers. You can just reach out and talk to just about anybody. Yeah, the landscape has changed a lot because you can connect with anyone so easily. But also, there is just so much more content now, and I think that's because it can be shared with other people more easily, and it can be made visible more easily. Absolutely. Pixiv changed the landscape in a way that I don't think people have really appreciated. I mean, of course, there mm -hmm. were always webcomics. Webcomics have been around since, you know, 2000. Um, and possibly earlier, although it would have been really hard to find them. Um, I think 1998 was the earliest um, deviant art was 2000. I think there was one. I just recently did a little bit of an article, and I have it here somewhere, but I'm not going to go look at it right now. But I was looking <laughs> basically about online systems. It was 98 to 2000 was when they all really sort of built up. And that was the first time people could put, like, web comics out on in these sort of aggregated sites where you would go with keywords to find web comics. And mm -hmm. I remember sitting in my office in 2000 with bookmarks of webcomics, you know, and going, oh, okay, I'm going to read this, and I'm going to read this, whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it's so much easier. Pixiv changed the landscape so massively, and Pixiv has become the online equivalent of the comic markets in Japan, where publishers now, they do go, they still do go trawl the the creators at the comic markets to see talented people who can show you that they can complete a work. And that's why you go to a comic market as a publisher, because you're going, this person could put it together from beginning to end and not just dump you halfway and go, Oh, sorry, life, you know, um, but, but online too, you can see the, you can see the immediate engagement. So you have something like Nagata Kabi-san's um, my, my lesbian experience with loneliness, which she puts out as a, web comic on Pixiv and gets 
tens of thousands of responses and likes and tons of engagement and the publishers can instantly see wow this thing's a game changer mm -hmm. i mean it's not just it's not even just like there's a big long line today there's this massive obvious publicly facing visible response and that's how you as a publisher can go wow so this is something we need to look at so many creators get their starts like in the industry by creating their own stories their own web comics or even their own doujins or yeah. their fan stories yeah. and those get noticed and they get great opportunities like nagata cabbie and it's really awesome right. to have so much more opportunities available, especially for queer creators Absolutely. to tell queer stories. Absolutely. And what's happening too, and this is sort of interesting, is that Pixiv allowed <clears throat> something that even Dojinshi has not been a great field for. Dojinshi are, uh, markets are really fabulous, and you can find a lot of uh, BL and Yuri and other stuff. I mean, I mean, literally other stuff, hamsters and trains, <laughs> completely <laughs> other, you know, baseball manga and Takarazuka manga. But what you can't find, you don't see a lot of until very, fairly recently was gay. Um, there was mm. a gay section. Uh, the last time I was at Komi Camp, which was a number of years ago, I walked up to a section where there were a lot of guys talking. It was adult men. And I walked up and I could see instantly that this was, was gay manga. And one of the guys came up to me and said in English, he goes, this is gay manga. And I said, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I immediately bought a couple of pieces to give to friends. You didn't see that until very, very recently. You, you had BL and you had uh, you had Yuri, but, and there was some queer content in there, but you didn't have like a queer group of people. And now right. you're starting to get more and more of that. Pixiv opened that up as well, because now you can put your queer story out, your own real mm -hmm. story, and people will read it and like it or not read it or not like it as they will. And you're not put in the position of standing in front of a group of people, handing them your life story which is right. stressful for a lot of people. And, uh, and it's, it's sort of the best of all possible worlds. And so what we're seeing now more and more are things like comic essays, which I am mm -hmm. extremely fond of, where people are telling their real life stories in the same way that in independent comics here in America, uh, particularly in North America, you're getting tons of artists doing uh, their autobiographical comics. You have something like Jennifer Hayden's the story of my tits, which was about her breast cancer. Um, or you have uh, Raina Telgemeier, who's North America's best-selling comic artist with her things like Smile and Sisters, who, which are uh, autobiographical stories. And all these artists are telling their real stories. Um, but in Japan, that's a much harder... It was a harder premise to sell. Mm -hmm. I mean, Americans will tell everybody anything. We walk up to strangers <laughs> and say, hi, I'm, you know, whatever. And and we're, we're very external facing that way. And Pixiv has allowed artists who did not previously feel comfortable sharing that sort of thing to find themselves more comfortable in a space where they could be honest and open and public facing, but still keep some of themselves to themselves and choose mm -hmm. to share what they want to share in a way that kept them in control of it. And that's been a massive thing. And then we've got, particularly East uh, Press has picked up a lot of these comic essays and is publishing them in print form. And that was how uh, Nagata Sensei Scott started and uh, Marishima Akiko's book about her ADHD is developing that and dealing with that as an adult. And Whoa. they're really, really good stuff, but they're really personal. Mm-hmm. 
so that's changed the landscape completely. It takes a lot of bravery to share your private life and especially stories of you struggling with very personal things mm. with the world. But because you can find a community online who can closely relate to and empathize with your experiences like it is also incredibly rewarding and it's cathartic for the community as a whole to have these stories be written and be shared and like all be able to bond over these shared experiences yes. especially uh, among queer people who you know before the internet like you couldn't like it would be much harder to find other people like you but now thanks to the internet you can find more stories about people like you who are going through the same hardships that you have been well in some extent um there was a very fully formed queer and this is true in north america and japan and and europe as well a very very fully formed gay community that could be queer community that could be found in bars and it's mm -hmm. something that we've almost completely lost now and I know there are folks, I, I came out in the mid 80s, so it was just in the middle of the AIDS crisis. I was a suburban kid. I wasn't going into the city to go to bars. I kind of just was at the tail end of the bar scene and I wouldn't have at the time because I didn't drink at all and it would have really been boring and loud and irritating and I wouldn't have liked the people who were there. Um, so I kind of missed that whole thing. But I know people who are older than me that, that, that lament the loss of that because there was an intimacy and to a, to some extent, it was the same intimacy slash privacy that we get with the internet because you go to a bar and you could say you were anybody. Nobody cared. Mm. I could walk in and go, hi, I'm, you know, Angelina Jolie. And people go, hi, Angelina, <laughs> because it doesn't matter what I say I am. You know, they're looking at me and talking with me and dancing with me or whatever. And there was a, there was a genuine community that grew up in, in Japan, uh, the Shinjuku Nichome, where, where gay folks would go, was a center, like Greenwich Village in New York City, a real center of community and art and uh, creativity. And like my friend Riko Takashima, who is a, an artist, mm -hmm. she got her start in the lesbian bars of, of Shinjuku Nichome and she joined a circle and they put out a magazine. And so she started writing comics for that magazine. And um, and then that magazine became another magazine, which was like a real big magazine with bar reviews and event reviews and, and her comics and some others and, and interviews and stuff. And so that stuff all really happened almost the exact same way. And one of the things I always like to caution people is humanity never changes. Mm -hmm. Only technology changes. So every group of people will always have had a way to find each other. There will have always been a center for community, for creativity. Yes, it would have been harder if you were the kid who lived out in, you know, the boonies and you didn't have easy travel. Yes, you would have been alone. That would be true whether it was 1960 or the year 1600. You know, I mean, that's, it's, that's never changed. But really, humans will always find a way to find people like themselves and, and live and create and tell their stories and marginalized communities far more than any other group because we're more motivated. And that is true mm -hmm. globally and throughout time. Most definitely. And it was really great to read Rika Takanji and see a snapshot of what kind of that bar culture was like in the 90s right. for queer folk. And it, it, because it's such an autobiographical kind of manga, too, it, that there is also a lot of interesting details that I found very fascinating to read as well. Right. I, I mean, I love that. that 
the day I got sold on that one, well, I met Rika in, <laughs> in 2002, and we we met at an event that I was running for Eurycon at a lesbian bar, which is the only like one of two lesbian bars I've ever been in my life. The she walked in and she said, basically, I started talking to her. And she said, "Oh, I'm I'm a Yuri manga artist." I said, "Really?" So she gave me a copy of her book, and I think it was like page two where she's talking about like which underwear should I wear, and I'm like sold. <laughs> <laughs> This is clearly by a woman. Like this is totally like, like any woman who reads this would go, yes, that would be like the third thing you were thinking. Absolutely. Like, okay, am I do I look okay? Am I wearing the right underwear? So it was such a great line and it totally sold it was very genuine. And Enrica's really like that. It felt like it was truly about authentic, real experiences yes. that you know Rika had lived through. Like, you know, there's a chapter dedicated to menstrual cramps. I love that chapter so much. <laughs> and uh, some of the most emotional chapters to me were Miho's backstory, which it's interesting because like the character Rika is not really, to me, a lot of the time that Miho seems like she is the stand-in for uh, Rika Takashima's personal experiences. And then the character Rika in the manga is kind of her own character to play off of Miho. But like Miho Uchan's memories, like the emotionality of that story, that felt like really true to life that Rika was really putting in, in her own her own experiences and like some of her childhood pain of like kind of realizing, you know, she was queer into that story. Yeah. That bit about the Ronsil, like not having the color that you could say. Interestingly, mm -hmm. the last time I was in Japan, we were walking past a store that sells Ronsils and they're colors now. It's not black mm -hmm. for boys, red for girls, although definitely still more, color choices that are going to be you know, like purple and pink and light green and stuff like that for girls. But it's definitely not this for the little kids, not the same. If you yeah. were a boy who wanted a red one, you could get a red one now. And, um, and I don't know. I mean, I think, I think there'd still be issues with your family. You still have the, the inherent systemic sexism that exists in the world. And, and that's a different thing, which every generation has to kind of fight that battle over again, um, everywhere. But when I looked at the store, I'm looking at that, I'm like, look at the color choices. Wow. Mm -hmm. And there were like things that were blinged out. Like they had like little rhinestones around the edges. I'm thinking, how awesome is this? So the kids get more of a, a choice. that's not just black for boys and red for girls. But I agree that that dysphoria that Miho was having about the uniform, I think a lot of my friends could resonate to that. I'm, it took me decades, decades to to understand the, the dysphoria I had about girls clothes. You know, mm -hmm. and I actually had to talk about it with, this week with my mom. And I said, you know, it literally took me decades to realize how much trouble I had shopping simply because girls clothes skewed me. You know, and, and as an adult, I, I wear almost primarily men's clothes and I feel like, yay, pockets <laughs> <laughs> and things that, you know, don't stop at my clothes that don't stop at my waist and stuff like that. So sleeves that go longer than, you know, three quarters. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind like, of really sympathize with that. <laughs> yeah. Freedom, freedom to express yourself like outside of any like societally mandated oh if you are this gender you have to, to wear this. this you have to behave like this i you know i could really resonate with that as someone who you know struggled with their sexuality at a young age too and like also had this form of like disillusion not liking idea of having to be restricted in like one box so right i mean that definitely hit me hard in a very relatable way too 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's sort of, that's what I mean about this is for anyone because yes, it's not your story, but you could mm -hmm. resonate with the concepts that it was expressing. And that's the most important thing. And, and what I see a lot, it's one of the, the ways I define sort of an immature fan versus a mature fan. An immature fan says, well, that's not my story, so I don't like it. Instead mm -hmm. of going, well, that one doesn't resonate with me, so I don't like it. You know, and there's, there's differences. You can, and also there's a way of saying, you know, like, well, I resonate with this piece of it, but I don't really like this. And I'm really honest about that in my reviews. I'm very, very careful to say, Look, I'm not the audience for this. Like, I'm watching She-Ra right now, the, the second season of mm -hmm. She-Ra. And the kids all, basically most of the characters annoy the living daylights out of me. Um, <laughs> but they're children. They're meant to right. be actually children. I don't like children. I find them very irritating. So <laughs> here I am being irritated by the, the childishness of these children. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's a really good lesson for me, that this was not a, a cartoon designed for me. I am welcome to watch it and resonate to the pieces of it that I can resonate to, but it's for children who will recognize their own behavior and the behavior of their friends in it. Mm -hmm. And so that was very meaningful because that's a, a part of life that I have no connection to. Yeah, it's it's important to think about that. The experiences that you've had aren't the only experiences. There are all sorts of other things people have gone through. And so even if you can't relate to those experiences, you should be able to empathize with them. And if if you can't enjoy a story because it's a meant for an audience and it's, it's telling them a, stories for them, you should be able to step away from that and go, this isn't for me, but this is valid. And it's, yeah. it's a good thing that it's there for an audience to connect with and get something emo of emotional substance out of it. And if not, that's okay. And this is this is the rule. Here's the rules at Okazu. And this was the rules when we, we talked about stuff, at, when I talked about stuff at Yuri panels and stuff. The rules go like this. Just because you like it doesn't mean it's good. Mm -hmm. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's bad. Mm -hmm. Just because it's bad doesn't mean you can't like it. And just because mm -hmm. it's good doesn't mean you have to like it. Mm -hmm. And those are four really, really important rules that most people don't ever really kind of get. And most people in fandom, and I, by fandom, I mean, in this case, I mean people who are super engaged with something. I'm not just, not just watching and, and reading something, but like really super engaged about it. Most people, and this goes for everything, everything, um, when they like something, it is equals good and must be defended at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you've ever sat with two people arguing about sports, you know exactly what I mean, right? You know, right. Or, or they get very passionate or screaming each other about whatever. Now, I was a big sports fan my whole life. So uh, my dad and I used to do toe to toe, nose to nose, shouting matches at each other about things. And um, and you get I get it. You know, you identify with whatever team and, and it was bad with us because he was a Yankees fan and I was a Mets fan for pretty much my whole life until I stopped watching baseball altogether when they all became assholes. Um, but this sort of thing, you defend this, you get really into it, you you find personal connections, right? And then you defend it because if they don't like your team or they're dissing your team, they're dissing you, you know? And that's true for anything, whether it's make of car or, or your favorite whatever, you know, food or whatever, or your favorite character in anime or God, for, uh, God forbid, your favorite relationship. <laughs> 
these things must be defended. And and I get that there's a fun quality of that kind of argument, but also there also gets uh, there is also can be, and not always, but there is some portion always that goes into really weird toxic behavior. And so there, it's really important to remember that just because you love something with a fiery passion doesn't mean it, the other person has to too. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember um, not too many years ago, I got a, a passionate email from somebody who I felt very bad for who objected deeply to one of my reviews, not because they disagreed with it. They didn't want that anime showing up on Okazu at all. Because by doing so, I implied that there was anything potentially gay in it. And in Uh. fact, in my review, I actually say, no, there isn't. But they were so angry at the fact that I even had the nerve to imply that there might be something gay-ish in here and they said can't you please take this down and i said no dear i can't i get to write about it and you could just not read it and they're like well what would you do if somebody said something you didn't agree with about something you loved and i laughed i'm like i don't mean to laugh at you but i don't care yeah i mean my opinion is not changed by your dislike if i'm very passionately in love with um the characters of haruka Michiru from sailor moon i consider them the queens of yuri and i mm-hmm. i have and an inordinate amount of goods in this house centered on them. <laughs> I, I have just ridiculous amount. They're like sitting where I am. I can see, I don't know, about a dozen things of them sitting around me here in the, in the office. And if somebody says to me, well, they're, you know, they're not gay, you know, Uranus is Prince Uranus from another life because they didn't understand the Ribbon no Kishi reference in that. Uh, that's fine. But then I just go, okay. And move on, because I'm not going to argue that you don't know what you're talking about, although, A, you don't know what you're talking about, and B, you sound like an idiot, you know, because it's just, I get it, you know, it makes you sad to think that they're queer for some reason, but that's about you and not about me, and I don't have to feel like my 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 passion for them or my, my resonance for them is affected by your complete closetedness because <laughs> you know, usually that's what it ends up being like when people get really passionate about how Haruka Mature are definitely not gay I'm thinking wow you're so gay and you just don't know it <laughs> like that's so sad oh my god <laughs> people get really tied up into the things they like are tied into their identity like they define their identity just by the things they like and so they feel attacked when you know someone disagrees yeah. with what they like and yeah. has a different opinion and so they perceive that dislike of the thing they like as a dislike of them right of course yeah of course and the, the thing is too and, and i get it i get it we all do it we all do it and it's it's hard to disassociate yourself from mm-hmm. the things you love um but at the end of the day this is cartoons and comic books yeah so I can love them passionately, but still be okay if you don't, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've written that about, like, you know, LG, Erica, it's just a fucking cartoon. <laughs> like, you know, and that's, again, why I'm really honest about why I resonate with things and why I don't like this. Th- things that I like are very, uh, very specific. I like manga with a lot of violence, but it has to be very specific. When it's exploitative right. violence, I dislike it deeply and absolutely really, really skeeve it. But when it's like two adults who are beating the shit out of each other, I have no trouble with it all. And I actually quite like that because I actually do really like that kind of violence in entertainment. And I'm not going to apologize for it. But people go, well, this is much too violent for me. And that's why I say something like Murcielago. I'm like, look, this yeah. is really violent. It's really violent. <laughs> You're going to want to avoid it. 
if you don't like violence, do not read this. And it's also exploitative, which is creepy because it rides the lines of what yeah. I'm comfortable with a lot of the time. Yeah, there's like that arc where she was like in that school, the school. For girls. That yeah. was the best arc. And that was <laughs> <Love> that <laughs> yeah. arc. Virginal Rose arc. That was awesome. Yeah. It was fun, but there's like moments in that manga where she's like really speaking on, on girls. underage yeah. girls. Yeah, yeah. And, and and she's very honest about it, which doesn't make it any better. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that manga is just so darn fun. Just I have actually described it as really violence. creative ways to kill people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, when I reviewed volume four of uh, the Virginal Rose arc, I had said that the climax is when the bad guy is killed with a meat hook through the chest, and that's not the most violent thing that happens in the, <laughs> the show. <laughs> and, and, I've said that because I want people to understand what the level of violence we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, grindhouse stuff here, you know, and, and it's fine if you know what that is. And if it's not your thing, you go, okay. You know, and I had somebody once, you know, kind of give me a really snotty, well, I can't believe you read that. I'm like, I'll get over it. (laughs) Like it's, you know, we're all going to have things that we like and dislike. And, and I, I like the cutesy poo stuff too, but I get my teeth are very sensitive and too much sugar makes them hurt. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's fun to have something with like a little bit of a wild edge to it like yeah. something just falls the screen well i really I, I honestly do like things with a lot of violence it's something i genuinely enjoy is is fighting stories i mean i was a martial artist for years and uh i like watching um people beat the crap out of each other in real life so and i don't mean again i don't mean an exploitative way but like mma like two oh, yeah. large men who are equal or women who are equally matched who want to beat the living daylights out of each other, I find completely acceptable as a form of entertainment. You might not. And I get that you might not. So everybody's, you know, got to just understand. And that's why I'm so, so open about my biases. Like I don't like Moe. I think it's creepy. I think people who like it are creepy. I think the reasons for just the justifications for why it's cute or sexy is even creepier. And I think the mm-hmm. more you justify it, the creepier you become. And I get what it is and why it is. And I still think you're a bunch of creeps for liking it kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and I say that really blamely because I want people to understand that if, if they like that and I'm going, I did not like this. So therefore, I don't like this manga. If they like that thing that I don't like, they can go, oh, I should try that manga. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm honest about what I like and don't like, then hopefully people can make their decisions more fully. Yeah, they can understand your perspective mm-hmm. and like knowing like what your tastes are and like what you value, like they can make decisions on like what they will also resonate with in any pieces of media you recommend. Exactly. So if I say this is extremely moe and I do not like it, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying I did not like it because I do not like what moe represents. However, if mm-hmm. you're a big moe fan, you can go, well, okay, if it's extremely moe, Maybe I will like this thing, you know, it's, it's, there's value. I mean, I remember reading many, many years ago when I was a kid, the local paper at the time had a movie reviewer that I disagreed 1000% with. So I would read their reviews to find out when they hated something because they hated pop culture stuff. They only Mm -hmm. liked really like, you know, intense drama, you know, and I couldn't stand that. So, and when they would just, kill a movie they'd say this is the worst thing ever i'd go out and see that one. <laughs> because like they hated things that i enjoyed so great now i know if you hate it i probably might enjoy it or at least i'd be more likely to enjoy it than something you like 
And there's mm -hmm. value to that. That's why you read reviews is to get perspective. Yeah. And it's great to read a lot of different perspectives to, you know, understand more fully the ways people can interpret a work and the ways mm -hmm. of meaning that they can derive from it. Because that also helps you, like, expand your own horizons in critically engaging with media and understanding it. I think that is a really important point. I'm so glad you said that. That is exactly right. Because when people engage with, with the media, what they frequently forget to do is engage with the ways to understand the media. Um, I'm a comparative literature major from college way back in the day. That is one of the things I frequently do is talk about completely other forms of works, other media, other genres, but also other styles, dance and fine art and photography, just whatever. But I'm talking about things well outside the media of sequential art because I want people to understand literature is, of course, my was my specialty, so I write a lot about literature. I want people to pick up books without pictures, and I'm not saying that there's a, no value in it. I think it's important. I think, I think reading a comic is reading. I don't think mm -hmm. there's a line there in the sand. All reading is reading, but there's some rewards you get from working at a book without pictures and there's different rewards that you get when you have pictures and there's different things again when it's mostly pictures or it's it's film or video or a visual novel every way you engage with material your brain develops differently and mm -hmm. i am a huge believer in do you want to understand manga better go to a museum take some time mm -hmm. to learn about fine art take some time to learn about different styles of art take time to learn about classical Japanese literature and different historical periods learn about the things that kids in Japanese schools read go to you know learn about Japanese style of art so that when you're looking at something you're not making this this facile you know anime to anime connection and you look at something you go oh hey I recognize that reference as referencing you know here you know and you know, Hiroshige for instance, you mm -hmm. understand that this thing about the, that pun about the Tokaido Road was was a specific joke about something, you know, and you start to understand that there's all the references. And that's actually how I got into this, because I was watching the Utena movie. Mm -hmm. Ma oh, I was reading the Utena movie manga and the movie manga has a scene that the final scene of the movie manga is a scene that heavily references a book called Yana Ura Noni Shoujo by Yoshinda Buka, which was published in 1920. Um, it was serialized in 1919 and published in 1920. And at the end of that book, one of the characters turns to the other and says, let's go to the outside world. And it was a very sociopolitical statement at the time for a one young woman to turn to another and say, let's leave this hothouse school where we are and leave the tower where we are, the, the Yana Ura. Let's let's mm -hmm. leave this and go outside and make a life together as women, not being married off by our families and not trying to fit into a man's society, but make our own lives. And here I am reading the movie manga and Ashi turns to Utena on the last page and says, let's go to the outside world. And I went, bam, I know that reference. <laughs> and all of a sudden I realized, wow, you know, I bet I've been missing references all over the place. Like I got a few of the references in, in Utena up to that point, but then I had to start really doing some work and I started researching and I found that there were a bazillion references I'd missed 
there were things that the Japanese audience would totally have gotten. And right on top of that, uh, a few years later, there was um, the series Strawberry Panic, which a lot of people here in America interpreted as a really lovely romance. And I saw instantly was a giant fanfic. Mm. They took references from everywhere and Western references and Eastern references. And they had references to things that had happened in manga like um, uh, Himitsu no Kaidan, which is this old sort of proto Yuri manga that was really cool back in the day by an artist who's still writing right now. Awesome. And they did, so they had a, the Midnight Tea Party comes from that. And then they also did like Withering Heights and Carmen. And at the end of the thing, I kept saying for, for weeks, I kept saying, I, I know exactly what I want them to be referencing at the end of Strawberry Panic. I want it to be um, The Graduate. And damned if they didn't do it. That was the final scene. I was like, boom, they actually stole directly from the, the graduate. And I thought, this is a giant fanfic. This whole thing is this massive stealing <laughs> of concepts from everywhere. But the American viewers didn't get any of them because they hadn't read those books and hadn't watched those movies and didn't. Even the American stuff, like the Wuthering Heights scene is about as unsettled. The Carmen scene is literally the play <laughs> that they do in the middle of the thing is Carmen. It's not like it's subtle. This is not like, it's not like it's hidden, right? They're actually literally doing the play Carmen really well thought out. In the middle of the thing, we go, hi, we're taking Carmen and we're actually going to do Carmen with Carmen. <laughs> like, this is what they were doing here. And the audience just wasn't getting it. They just weren't grokking what was going on here and then when the novels came out people were like oh it's so pretty i'm like oh my god the language is ridiculous and overblown and it's on purposely it was ridiculous and overblown and they did that with the references too so you have there's a roman mouth of truth in the middle of the school there's no reason for there to be one but there is and so we built a scene around <laughs> it and, and you need to know what the things are to understand what the meaning of and i thought well the eerie fandom would be so much better served by reading some books so at that time, I started doing a stolen meme count on our Yurikon mailing list at the time, uh, which is now long gone. But basically every week we'd say, okay, here's the episode and here's all the things they took from and where they took them from so mm -hmm. that you can understand what references you missed because you didn't read that book. You read the Cliff Notes. I'm sorry, Spark Notes right. or whatever. You know, there were Cliff Notes when I was in school. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so all the things that you didn't ever even heard of. So we actually just kept this running list of all the things that they, they referenced on Strawberry Panic so people can understand that there's all this stuff that they're missing. Yeah, there is a lot of context surrounding pretty much any piece of media you consume because like I like how you describe Strawberry Panic as like a fanfic because I feel like pretty much any piece of media yep. is kind of like a fanfic on the part of the writer. Like they're taking like ideas that they were got inspired and they really are fond of from elsewhere and they incorporate that into their own work and like they mix and match the different elements to like make it something truly their own yeah. but like everything is really inspired by a lineage of things that have come before and That's not hard. just from one specific medium but from all around them of course in other forms of art and especially from real life experiences too yes, yes absolutely and that's really you know, that's the whole, that's the meaning behind the seven plots concept, that there's only seven plots, you know. That's mm -hmm. true, there's only seven plots, but it's how you make them yours. And that's why a lot of writers say, start with what you know. I don't think that that's good advice, because everyone does start with what they know, and frequently that's quite banal. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always said, no, don't start with what you know, learn something new. 
start from something that you need to work up to. And, and that's my advice to people, but start from what you know is fine, which means that you get stories that are, you know, at schools because the kids, the person writing it knows a school or, you know, it's, it, it, they're not, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like <laughs> a lot of manga is really functionally original. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I tell you I'm writing a manga and it takes place as an office, you'd go, well, duh, or can you work in an office? Actually, I don't work in an office, but I'm in the working world, so that makes sense that I would want the working world represented in my story. I mean, you know, if I said to you, right. I'm making a, you know, a martial arts loving uh, lesbian librarian series, you'd be like, right, duh. <laughs> you know? like, that's not exactly <laughs> like a stretch. But, but that would be, of course, what most people would do because it's who they are and what they know. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great place to start. But when you're, as you're writing, you should be uh, stretching yourself and learning a little bit more. And, and more importantly, learning the characters more. I'm a big fan of letting my characters lead the story. Mm -hmm. I think a good approach to writing is to write about something you want to learn about or you don't know as well. But incorporate your real life experiences, like stuff that you do know, like to give it a sense of emotional authenticity. Yes, exactly. As a writer, you should always try to be learning about new things while you're writing. And, and more, and people, learning about people, yes, because yes. that's how, that's the worst writing. When you get somebody who's like writing about something that they're not, and they're going, yeah. okay, well, I am going to write this person. You know, you get people, I, I remember this very vividly, getting things in the day, back in the day, emails, but guys saying, you know, I write really good lesbians. I'm like, no, you don't. And I can tell you why. Because you write lesbians. That's not how you write. You, mm -hmm. I don't I don't write like, all right, I'm writing a bunch of lesbians and there's a man in the story and I'm going to write <laughs> this man really well. I know how to write men. You don't write like that. That's weird. Yeah. You know, you write people, you write your character. What's the character about and what, is, what does the story need? You don't write a type. If you're writing yeah. a type, I am going to include a Puerto Rican character in this story and I will make sure everybody knows she's Puerto Rican. That would be weird and also inauthentic in every possible way. I don't have that background. I don't know that background. I'd be literally putting in random words and food items. You know, it's like, that's not okay. You know, that's, that's exactly when you know, wow, this is a white person or a really shitty story, you know? Um, and, and lots of people do do it that way. Like, look at all this stuff that I know about this thing. You can always tell when someone is writing their idea of what a person is like, yes. rather than really being interested in exploring the interiority of that person, what their inner life is like, what their experiences have been, and how they inform their actions and how they behave with other people. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you brought up Utena earlier, and Kuniko Ikohara's work on anime, on Sailor Moon and Uta, is like very influential i think on yuri culture like going out into the world and he's he's a queer man but he's not a lesbian by any means but his characters they are feel like fully fleshed out three-dimensional human beings yeah and so they feel like authentic people they do um he but you can if you watch a lot of his series in a row mm -hmm. you can really Star, like if you watch Utena and you watch Mowaru Penguin Ram and you watch Yuri Kumarashi, just those three. Once you've watched those three, you will start to realize there are pieces of him in there. Yeah. Not just his visual language, but there's some stuff he's got going on with yeah. parental abuse, for instance. 
he has got some serious issues with parental abuse. Now, I don't know if he just feels that that's a really strong point that he can hammer on or he personally has issues with it, but it's a repeated theme in his stories. And it's mm -hmm. one of the themes that when you read and when you uh, encounter his work repeatedly, you start to go, whoa, there's something here. And I don't know if he's just, he knows somebody or he personally, and I wouldn't begin to guess, but the bottom line is that that's a, a piece of himself or some story that he needs to work through that shows up periodically in almost everything he's ever done. And I just, oh, yeah. I find that fascinating because when you've done a lot of work, when you have several major, major series, you can't hide yourself yeah. anymore. And things that you need to work through show up. And yeah. it's so fascinating because I, there was an artist, uh, an author that I really liked in, um, in uh, American sci-fi. Her name was Melissa Scott. And she was really hot for a while. And I was reading all her work. And I thought she's hiding behind her own work. There's something she needs to deal with that she's not touching here. And she's using all this other stuff to, to shield herself. And it always felt inauthentic. And I loved mm -hmm. her stories. I loved the designs of them, but they always at the end felt hollow. And I was always sad about that because I felt like if she just let it go, she would have blown me away, you know, but Obviously, this is the way she wrote. <laughs> I think I'll change right. that, you know. But but I always remember that. Like, just sometimes you have to just let the authentic you show up in your writing too. And I'm saying writing, but of course that is true for drawing and for, uh, yeah, you know, animation, any and, piece and of film and artistic expression, any expression. Yes, exactly. Like emotional sincerity, like truly putting in what you're passionate about, what you believe, like things that you are. That, that are tied to, like, you exploring something about yourself. Yeah. Like, I think that's a lot of why Ikuhara has such a passionate fan base and such a in fan base interested in learning more about his work and, like, understanding everything there is to know about his work is because it is dense with uh, ideas that he has and things that he wants to express and recurring motifs throughout his works. Like, the boxes in Sarazanmai are, like, you know, you can go back to even Utena shows up but then it immediately reminds you of Penguin Drum and that's a big right, thing right. Penguin Drum I think Penguin Drum might well be, end up being I mean as much as I love Utena and there's a lot mm. of things to love in it I think more of Penguin Drum might very well be his his finest piece of work it is a beautiful show there's a and there's a lot of stuff that he does in that set him on his path for the thing for Sarasan Mai and some of the other things mm -hmm. he's done uh, Yuri Kumarashi stuff some of the visuals there and you really, I mean, he has he has his own very distinct style. Um, and mm -hmm. I think you're right about boxes and walls. I mean, he uses these visual things repeatedly. Whether or not there's real meaning back there, I don't know, but they've become his. Right. You know, coffins. Boy, does he love his coffins. <laughs> yeah, coffins. And man, even like otters and penguins, like there's... there's bears. Bears. There's symbolism, like going back and all his works that you can trace through and then see him like, now I'm going to emphasize this idea, yeah. this symbol of the otter. Yes. We had a, we had a, um, last year uh, for my Patreons, I had an online party and we did a trivia contest. And one of the questions was, in Utena, uh, name five animals that appear. <laughs> <laughs> and I count, we counted. We we actually really thought about it. We counted like 13 animals that we could name ultimately yeah. between my wife and I. And the question was name five. And, and we got 
about nine that, that the group got about nine it was really amazing how many how often he uses animals to stand in for various concepts um, but mm. nobody remembered the kangaroo in Newton, and I was very sad. What? How do you forget the kangaroo? Yeah, I know, right? The kangaroo was great. Everyone remembered the elephants, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. that one was yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the cow. And you the know, cow. And, you know, How can you, know, you forget the cow? The cow was like, like the not death me point, turning right? into the cow is one of the right. greatest episodes. And, and the thing is, whether or not that has any meaning, and, and this is important, like whether or not the Nami turning into a cow had meaning, or whether <laughs> it was left there as a visual thing for us to assign meaning to, doesn't matter ultimately yeah i mean what's great about ikihara is that there is like this very complex emotional stuff that he's expressing but there's also things in there he throws in just for fun because he likes it or or he thinks it looks cool right yeah yeah the butt stuff in uh sarans and mai i mm-hmm. think that's just there for fun he's just playing and it, it may have meaning and it may have one meaning yeah. to him and he put it there because it would look cool and let other people make up their mm-hmm. own meanings and that's actually some of the things i really like best about his work is that the symbolism is established within the context of the story like mm-hmm. the apple on memorial penguin drum yeah you know it's not sure we apples are rife with symbolism throughout art it's not <laughs> like we need to drag ourselves very far to find what do apples mean what does it mean within the context of the story yeah. and then we can assign a lot of stuff around that and that's i think really honestly that's what i think he's doing he's saying okay yes we're picking a thing that has a lot of symbolism of itself that we create this other symbolism we leave it Mm open-ended and then we um let it go actually to me the the most breathtaking use of that again in more pregnant drum is the um the statue Mm. uh, the city statue outside the building when we're getting the scene of the girl's father carving her that statue becomes it's it's david so it's obviously very meaningful but it also becomes horrific and it starts right. to become the creepiest thing you've ever seen and anytime you see it you immediately creep now <laughs> like and i've never <laughs> liked the statue since so it's so fascinating to to see how he takes things that have symbolism creates symbolism around it and then uh leaves you to deal with that yeah, like finding new meaning in a like commonly used object that have been used as symbols in yeah. other works or other stories. Like he extrapolates like how he feels about those objects and uses it in a different way in his stories. Right. And that's what's that's what's really fun about his work is that you know you might see like these symbols like an apple that's so common in other works, but like the way he uses it is so much different. Exactly. Exactly. Or is it, and are we just reading into it? Because that's the the other question, right? Like, right. did we did we make that up? <laughs> I was reading something last night, and I felt it was very gory-esque. I was reading Emily Carroll's When I Arrived at the Castle, which is a brand new book out from Koyama Press, and I highly, highly recommend it. And I'm going to be interviewing her at Toronto Comics Arts Festival coming up in a couple weeks. And when you look at her work, particularly on her website, I start feeling there's a lot of references to like Edward, you know, to Gory mm-hmm. and Edward Gory. And I'm thinking, I wrote her as a question for our potential interview. I said, is, am I getting the Gory thing or do you wish he'd come back to life so you could kill him? <laughs> like, <it's>, like <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like, was he an inspiration or are you annoyed that he's an inspiration or is he not an inspiration, but everyone says that, you know? So I think I think we often as readers and again, this happens because I'm a comparative literature person. I'm always, always naturally keyed in 
to doing comparative things. This thing reminds me of this thing, which is how I got into Yuri in the first place, because this thing reminded me of this thing. And then I realized there was a reference. And then I realized that thing reminded me of this other thing and this other thing going back to 1919. And, um, and so uh, when I picked a year for the, the birth of the Yuri genre, I picked 1919, which is the, the mm -hmm. serialization of Yana or Nishojo. But it's, Fair, it's it's to some extent arbitrary, but on the other hand, that particular novel set so many tropes that became constants, not just of beauty, but of girls' literature. And right, the classes literary movement starting in the twenties. Right, and and Yoshina Buka was part of that, and she also wrote Hana Monogatari, which was like the generation-defining work for young women in the in the nineteen twenties. Mm -hmm. So her work set tropes that to this day we would recognize in girls literature and and then from that manga and then from that anime to this very day and so i felt that she was i think of her as the grandmother of Yuri. i don't think she'd be uncomfortable with that i hope she hasn't struck me down yet um but i feel like her stuff was so integral to the tropes that developed through the s period s aesthetic and then into Yuri manga, into the, the mid-50s, some of the proto-Yuri manga, and then into the 70s when um, you got actual people writing uh, BL and Yuri at the very beginning, before those words even existed for these things, you know, before, right. you know, nobody was, when when um, Heart of Thomas was being created by Motohagio, she was not thinking, I'm writing a boy's love, because it didn't, that word, yeah, well, it didn't exist yet, mm -hmm. but that feeling was what she was sort of developing and the same thing with uh uh Yamagishi Ryoko's um Shiroi Heia no Shiroi Futari. yes exactly to you know our our white room and uh mm -hmm. it's got so many things that we would recognize instantly yeah so it's sort of set so many tropes so I feel like there's once I started reading stuff and realized there was an artistic and literary continuum back to the early 20 uh, the early 20th century I was like wow you know this is this is not just standalone and and it's important to always remember that nothing happens in a in a vacuum right all of mm -hmm. humanity continues so yuri began because two women loved each other and two guys like the idea of two women having sex when I mean, those are separate things they're unrelated but these two things happen all the time simultaneously throughout history so mm -hmm. This sort of thing just happens, and then people write stories about those things, and sometimes they overlap, and sometimes they're really totally different. But when we tie it all together, we can look at it and say all of this can be one genre. We can give it all a word. Right. I mean, there's always a context for why things happen when they do. That's interesting to look back to, but also like kind of the lineage of events that lead up to the modern day. So... I think that just based on the description, what you say about uh, Yanura no Nishojo, like, I think that does seem like a valuable place to start when you're tracing back, like, what we know as Yuri today, like, what tropes, what types of stories being told, yep. where did that all originate, or, like, really become kind of codified right, exactly. and then expanded on from there. Exactly. It's sort of, she established things that became those tropes, like the exotic girls, school, you know, Catholic yeah. school in some foreign, unreal place and time where there's, yes, as you said earlier, a Nadeshko beauty and a cute, Genki uh, younger woman. And these things sort of just became so 
recognizable that they just go on and on and on and it becomes parodies of themselves which is actually really funny and then they get reversed because look we're doing the opposite <laughs> now and you know and that's it's totally normal and what we're seeing right now is i was joking i did a review yesterday of a drama cd it's an original uh doujinshi drama cd that i picked up at komitia this past uh, february and it's starts with a young woman, a high school girl, walking around Shinjuku Kabukicho at midnight, and she sees an older woman, dr apparently drunk, and crying, and she helps the woman, the two of them end up falling in love. And I said, I jokingly say in the in the epilogue that, um, so drunk career women, drunk working women are now the, the uh, cool, athletic Onesama <laughs> of, of Yuri 2020, like like that's the thing. So we're getting because what's happened is all the people who are writing Yuri have gotten older, right? And and it's right. high school stuff is great. There's nothing wrong with young love, but damn it, when I'm 54 years old, I'm no longer interested in watching 16 year olds. You know, it's not mm -hmm. uh, it's not something I'm I'm resonating to. I want to have stories about adults. And of course, mm -hmm. I'm waiting for now all the all the mangaka who are younger than me are, are drawing that now. And eventually they're going to get to my age and we're going to start seeing senior Yuri. <laughs> and you're starting to yeah. get like occasional <laughs> bits of it. But you know we haven't gotten a lot of that because of course they're not there yet. So that's not their story. Mm -hmm. But the first time they're in, you know, one of them and their and their girlfriends are in the hospital, you're going to start seeing senior Yuri with like these really dramatic medical things <laughs> like it's gonna happen i'm gonna tell you right now it's gonna happen but but uh, yuri is still so young that we still get a lot a lot of uh, girl stuff plus the idea of school being sort of a fantasy space in and of itself or nothing it's sort of mm -hmm. like what's what happens in high school stays in high school <laughs> like yeah. you know so that, that you get that's a trope in yuri manga it it's is like oh we are going to be lesbians until graduation yeah by until graduation or lesbian until yeah. graduation that lug bug thing is a real thing uh in real mm. life and yeah so there but there was more way back in the day like 10 years ago yeah there was still the marriage or death thing where you know you would leave school and you couldn't be together anymore one of you would have to go get married go home get married or, or one of you would die and, and leave the other one mm. and that was a that was a massive trope all the way uh, into the 2000s we're seeing it less and less and less and as marriage equality gains traction globally and in japan as uh, people insist upon their relationships being seen as family and not just this thing we do until we build a real family that you're going to see more and more of this. And so because manga is always and always has been a place where ideas you can't express at the dinner table, things you don't right. say to your friends and family face to face, that's what manga is for. Um, and that was actually something I was talking about with Rika Takashima just the other week it's in itself manga is a fantasy space It's a space where we work out stuff that we want to say mm -hmm. or think or do or experience or understand that we would not be able to sit down and talk to our family about or our spouses or whatever and and that's why that thing where you know i fell in love in high school becomes such a rich area because it's non-threatening mm -hmm. it makes people feel safe and for many years I'm going to say something massively sexist, and I apologize, but it is just hmm. really the truth. Men hmm. always assume everything they do is the standard, and since they run all the companies, they just develop, they say what we are is a standard. So when 
men who were fans of manga are running the companies that publish manga, it becomes recursive, right? The stories they mm. want to read are the stories that you read, which are the stories that are published, which are the stories, you know, which are read, and it becomes this recursive thing. And so what happens is for many decades, what you had was men publishing stories that did not threaten men. So mm. you had women writing stories of these high school loves and men writing stories of these high school loves. And the assumption was always that the girls would graduate and then go get married. And that was no longer true for decades before these stories kept continuing, but it was unthreatening to the otaku male mind mm -hmm. because they all knew that, of course, eventually they, you know, they get a wife. That's, that's obvious. They will be given a wife. And it's a hard sense of reality when, when you realize that you've done nothing to make yourself an interesting person and nobody wants to marry you and you start getting angry and blaming other people, which is what we're seeing with the asterisk dot asterisk gators, uh, where yeah. they're, they're really, really angry that the world has not found them to be as interesting as they find themselves. Yeah. The world doesn't revolve around them and, and what their they stories want. anymore. Right. Exactly. And, and not only that, but they, we find it ridiculous. <laughs> like, mm. You know, it's not they just feel threatened so... that other people are coming in to the space. They can't, uh, fathom that other people enjoy playing games or, or reading comics and it's i gotta say i've been doing this a long time and it's like this with every generation every generation of, of young men have to be have the world explained mm -hmm. to them over and over each one individually because they don't read the answers to the other questions and they don't care that you've done this a thousand times and every single person comes on to quora and says but why gay you know every person wants their personal time with every gay person or every feminist, it's always the same thing. It's very tiresome. But the bottom line is that, that the idea that these two girls in love in middle school is fine because we know that they'll grow up and get married and have children like good women are supposed to is starting to fade out in Yuri. It's still mm -hmm. there, but it's fading. And um, a lot of Yuri still isn't gay. There's very little lesbian identity. It's one of my... Um, ongoing definitions on, on Okazu is that Yuri is lesbian content without lesbian identity. That's the mm -hmm. difference because if it has a lesbian identity, then it's an LGBTQ story. It's a queer story. Right. So, so, but we're seeing little dribbles of that here and there. And mm -hmm. so there's, it gets, it, it's always changing. Everything's changing, but we're definitely seeing at least more adults now. Yeah. Because the artists are older and want to see more adults in their work. And that's what's going to happen. And now that people are becoming more comfortable, you know, proudly declaring themselves, yes, I'm an LGBT person, I want to be visible yes. in my art and the media I consume, now that more artists who are feeling comfortable with declaring themselves as LGBTQ yep. or writing stories for that audience, yep. like now we're having more open characters in manga, which I'm very happy to see. And these characters can have their stories being told in manga without having the tragic ending, like right. the old kill off my gays trope. Like yeah. in Shiroi Heia. I love that. Like Simone is, she never ex says the words, I am a lesbian. No. But no. she doesn't deny that but she But she probably wouldn't have known the words. 
there's a moment in the manga where Resin, you know, like Resin is distraught over, she overhears, hears the rumors of classmates saying that yeah. she and Simone are lesbians. Right. Or lesbos in the scanlation, uh, is a slang. But then, you know, she confronts Simone about it and says, oh, this is ridiculous. Like, we're just friends, right? And then Simone is like smoking a cigarette, of course, just, <laughs> I, I don't like to lie. She doesn't deny, so like, Right. There, it's like a conversation. No, Simone sees herself as a lesbian. Yes. And, but of course, because she's the out lesbian character, she has to die she's tragically also an outsider. at the end. She's very much the yeah. outsider at that school. And I want to point out that the two of them are living in an attic room, the Yana yeah. Ura. Uh, so I just want to say that because I'm telling you, there, yeah. there's this. I love the end of that because what a lot of manga readers do not realize because they don't read lesbian pulp novels from the 1950s and 60s here in America. People, lesbians dying in a knife fight is such a really, really common trope in American lesbian pulp. And when, when Simone goes to the bar, gets drunk, gets herself killed in a knife fight, I actually was howling with laughter. I'm, I'm a terrible person, but it was like, I was like, thank you. That is perfect. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment of, of a merging of two massive pulp concepts you know and and uh i i really think uh shiroi no hair uh shiroi no shiroi no i couldn't get it out jeez shiroi no man i think it is a, a fantastic pulp manga yeah and it came out at the same time as um maya no Surutsu, and that's also another fantastic pulp manga some of the early yuri manga do read like pulp novels from the 1950s because they're so overblown mm-hmm. and so overwrought and i love that i mean i'm a i'm a collector of lesbian pulp i think it's it's fantastic and in one of my yuri monogatari's i actually wrote a story that somebody else illustrated where it was basically all the pulp so it starts with a woman in jail and she talks about how she was a young woman she came to hollywood and was picked up by a starlet and, and became her her kept woman and eventually you know they got into a fight and and and, and she killed her lover in, in a knife fight and ends up in jail <laughs> i thought it was the funniest thing ever people hated it hated it i thought it was hilarious <laughs> because of course it's all the pulp tropes all in one right story right and but again these are these are not this is not uh an overlap that's common at all mm-hmm. so people didn't recognize it and it doesn't matter i mean people can hate it i thought it was it didn't matter i did it for me and i don't really care about other people's opinion um i yeah. thought it was hilarious having a story that was basically a yuri manga that was all the lesbian pulp tropes Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a little bit of playing with tropes in Shiroi Heia. Like, oh, this, it comes across to me like that Yamashiki Ryoko, because she was a reader of this literary tradition of, you know, class S novels, but also probably the American lesbian novels that were coming out in the 50s, like, she was incorporating both of those and kind of doing a wink and a nod on these tropes. Yeah, I don't know that she actually would have read the the American stuff. She was a fine artist, so, I, you know, mm. it's hard to know what, what her entertainment was. I'm not sure she actually read any of that stuff, but she definitely had that, that sense of overblown, overwroughtness yeah. that makes fine pulp. And and also some like the, some of the melodramatic moments in the manga that can be eschewed for comedy, like some of Resin's reactions to things that Simone does. Oh, yeah, like absolutely. one of my favorite moments in the manga is like Simone has snuck out for the night, and like uh, Madame Meru is like coming knocking on the door to check like that boat 
uh, Rosita and Simone are like in their beds, and like Simone just sneaks back through the window and she crawls in her bed, and yeah. then Mario checks that they're both there, and then she leaves, and then immediately afterwards, like Simone jumps out of bed and jumps out the window. Yep. Yeah, yeah. and, and like Rosita's reaction is like, "Oh, she's so insincere." It's like, <laughs> it's such a random, right? You're like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> like that's that's your reaction. I know, but it's it's very funny because. It's it is very overblown, but if you look, yeah. have you read Heart of Thomas? Unfortunately, not. Okay. I need to read more. I recommend it. It is out in English. Rachel Thorne did the translation, and um, I recommend it because you can see that it also is very overblown. That whole period of time was very all of the all of the manga was very very you know hand to the forehead. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm playing. It's my turn to be Percy Bysshe Shelley today. You know, kind of thing, and it's it's all very very yeah. And but it is very that I love I love that manga really is and I consider that to be the first really Yuri manga. Mm-hmm. I like that melodramatic because it's like sincerely silly. Yes, but it's presented as completely serious. Like that's why it's so funny. <laughs> you know, it's it's not meant to be funny. Like I, I feel like that moment there's just an element of like a wink and a nod of comedy there, but maybe that's just me. The way you want to, yeah, yeah. It's 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 hard to tell. I think the whole thing is presented very very straight. Right. The climax where Simone is killed, like I, that, is like a serious moment. I love that, and, like that moment. is a, it's a breathtaking panel. Like her, yeah, the panel that's like showing all the motions of her falling. I down know, right? And the desperation in her face. I mean, it's not a, yeah. it's not a really detailed manga, but the desperation in her face is she basically throws herself on the knife. Mm-hmm. You know, basically. I mean, she tells the guy, "Stab me right here in the heart if you're gonna do this." Yeah. And she just looks so, she's so intense. I mean, I love how intense she is through the whole thing. She's mm-hmm. hyper intense. Um, that actually leads me to um, that manga, among a number of other uh, manga and manga magazines from my collection, are going to be on display at the Toronto Public Library, uh, the main awesome. reference library. Outside page and panel, there's going to be a display for the month of May, celebrating 100 years of Yuri. Mm-hmm. And uh, Shiroi Hinofutari is going to be among them. So is Yana Erna and Shoujo. I've got one of the original issues of Margaret Magazine that has Rosa Versailles. Uh, I've got some new manga, some of the stuff that's been translated into English. And so basically you get to see 100 years of Yuri laid out in front of you in visual form. Now that's incredible. I, I definitely would love to attend that exhibition, like just see like the history of the manga as like pre- how it was presented originally through these magazines, yes. like this collection. I got to tell you, um, I was in Japan in February for Komitia and uh, went to Mandarake, as we all do, to make our pilgrimage <laughs> to Mandarake <laughs> to spend money. And I went, they have a old manga store and I have in all the years I've been going, never found a single issue of anything. And they had three issues of Margaret with, with original stories that were of interest to me, Asa Narai and, um, and Rosa Versailles. Mm-hmm. And I picked them up. I'm like, yes, please. You know, I would love to have these. And so now I have some of these in my collection and I've got one is mine and two are gifts. But the, the answer is, you know, I'm holding this thing. And it's like, for me, even this is like original, cool history. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, some of the stuff I have in my collection here, I think this is the first doujinshi that Morinaga Milk did, or this is the first doujinshi that was, you know, whatever, this person or whatever. You know, I have these things and I think, wow, like this is wow. this is so-and-so's origin. This is the first thing that they ever did that was, you know, publicly available. And, and that stuff is really meaningful to me. I, I love that. But the uh, mm-hmm. 100 Years of Yuri 
lecture is going to be going on tour this year. So we're going to be at TCAF, uh, Toronto Comic Arts Festival, uh, May 11th and 12th. We're going to be at Queers and Comics uh, the next weekend, 17th, 18th in New York City. We're going to be at uh, Anime Next in Atlantic City, New Jersey in June. I'm going to be up at uh, Urethon in Montreal in August. Uh, and then it, in September, we're doing a 100 Years of Yuri Tour of Japan with Packset Travel. Um, and you can go to uh, packsettravel.com, P-A-C-S-E-T, travels, all one word, packsettravel.com, and go for the 100 Years of Yuri Tour. It's going to be a week-long Yuri extravaganza. We're going to be going to, be going to locations that appear in Yuri anime. We're going to be going to Yoshina Buko's house. Uh, we're going to be doing Yuri shopping like crazy people, and we're going to do a, a onsen overnight, and we're going to be talking Yuri for a solid week, and it's an amazing <laughs> once-in-a-lifetime tour, so I, I really hope people will join us because it's going to be ex exceptional. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome experience, and it's like a real Yuri pilgrimage. It is. It's exactly it. Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. When I, when I first went to Yoshinobuka's house, that's exactly what I called it. It was my pilgrimage <laughs> to be able to give her you know, to, to give her my regards. I mean, it was just, it was such an extraordinary thing to think here was where she lived with her wife or what would have been her wife now, you know, uh, her secretary, mm -hmm. uh, Chimanga, for uh, all, for her whole life. They lived together until, until she died. So. Yeah, that's awesome. But, you know, going back to your collection and some of those early Yuri works. So, mm -hmm. Shiroi Heya, we would consider like the first Yuri manga, really, like 50 years after the foundation of the genre of Yuri. In 1971, like we would consider that the first Yuri manga. But then afterwards, uh, like for the next two decades before what I guess we would consider the modern Yuri as it started up in the 90s, like what were some of the key works from well, that period Sailor from Moon. the 70s and 80s? Yeah, Sailor in Moon. the 90s, but like in the 70s and 80s, like leading up to Sailor Moon. Okay, so after Shibuya no Hifutari, uh, no Futari, I don't know why I'm having trouble like, totally stumbling <laughs> on that every time. People are like, does she have any idea what she's talking about? So that thing that I keep not being able to say for some reason. After that, there was kind of a lot of lull because the 70s was a pretty heavy period of time where people were being very experimental and there was just a lot of stuff going on. Really, you didn't see a lot of Yuri in, in mainstream anything. Mm. Uh, you did see some uh, doujinshi, but mostly that was at the very, very late 80s. So what happened was, and this is where it gets kind of historically weird. Um, so in the 1970s was when, mid-70s is when Kumiket was founded, 75 I think was the first year. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, like everything else, a lot of the stuff that was being printed at the time was uh, lesbian porn for guys who were drawing it for themselves, right? And they took the word Yuri from the Yuri Zoku no Heo, which was the lesbian letter page of a gay magazine called Barozoku. And mm -hmm. so... They were at, they were having their lesbian characters called Yuri or Yuriko or Yurika. And so you had a lot of lesbian porn in these, in these do, early doujinshi. And not surprisingly, because of that, women were kind of disassociating it. But what happened was over right. here in lesbian communities and, and early feminist communities of the 1970s, you had a, a completely different, it actually was almost exactly the same in America. You had gay comics being published. It was a lot of men drawing gay comics for gay men. And then you had the lesbians doing their own stuff in newsletters. 
where a lot of it's informative and, you know, here's our get togethers, here's our monthly meeting, you know, it's very organizational, right? So you had these newsletters going out and, and that's true in Japan and, and America. So oddly, oddly parallel where you had lesbians making like these newsletters where they'd have a piece of fiction or a poem and informative information and you can call this hotline, here's our meeting, if you're meeting, want to meet other women, come here. And then also have some comics. And in Japan, you had these comics. And so in the 70s and 80s, that was where you found anything that we would think of as Yuri was in these now gone ephemera of... Mm-hmm organizational stuff. Um, in the 80s, things started getting printed and sometimes sold at events. Um, I have some pieces from the very, I think 1988 is the oldest thing I have. And then in the 90s, you kind of had a bit more of a boom because people who had grown up reading some of the early BL and Yuri stuff started to go, well, you know, I want to see more of this. And so now they've grown up, they start drawing. And that's how it goes. Because every time you, mm-hmm. every time something's published, people who grew up reading it want to push that boundary, right? So right. in the 1990s, you think you have things like Pieta. And what happens with tropes is almost always when a trope is developed, you get this weird expansion of it. Always. This happens over and over again in Yuri. So in Shroihan Ofutari and earlier in um, uh, Sakura Namiki, you have the one character who is emotionally volatile, right? And so then Mm -hmm. what happens is in all Yuri, one of the characters is emotionally volatile and you get that all the way through the 2000s and you get like Sachiko and Maria Samagamitra, you know, you have the Nadeshko character is the emotionally volatile one, right? And Mm -hmm. what happens is you get that expanded out into sort of, oh, the emotionally volatile one is abused or, uh, you know, hysterical or violent and you get that in through strawberry panic and you get that in all the way up through citrus yeah you know it just keeps going on and on and on when i saw it in citrus i was like done we're done last one ever (laughs) never tolerating this again but you know one of my favorite memories actually of being at the yuri 10 was talking to the woman who was leading me around uchita-san and we were standing in front of the pictures of them and i said but look at these faces they're miserable i said i could totally see may may needs therapy more than a girlfriend and yuzu (laughs) what you could totally see her like in college like four years later with her 17th girlfriend and the girlfriend going yes yes i know your sister, shut up shut up <laughs> i can totally see like the two of them would just never get past this um, yeah nah, so i'm standing in front of this doing this and the two of us are hysterical and like people are like what <laughs> anyway so what happens is there's this assumption in this couple that one of them is emotionally volatile slash mentally not okay you know mm. and so then pieta is a story that i want to i talk about and it's actually in the exhibit as well where that is flipped and it turns out that when it appears originally that one of the girls is, in fact, uh, suicidal and violent, it turns out she's actually okay, and it's her family that's been lying about it. And mm-hmm. her family is abusive, and it's the love that she has for the other girl that saves her. And I think it's a fantastic story. It's the mid-90s. And, of course, right around that same time, we have Sailor Moon. And so, yes. really... Modern Yuri fandom begins with Haruka and Michiru. It absolutely does. Like you said before, they're the queens of Yuri. They're the queens of Yuri. Literally. 
on seven o'clock on Sunday nights, Shinjuku Nichome would come to a halt while people went and watched the show together at bars mm-hmm. because they're they're just so gay, you know. And yeah. and and it's and it's it's the first time that a lesbian couple have ever been seen ever on Japanese TV of any kind. And then of course with Ikuhara, they get gayer and gayer all the way through the yeah. first ten episodes of of stars where they get really gay so many incredible innuendos too like they really hate not real of an innuendo i mean it's like i don't want to hear like that jokes. outside bed like i mean seriously yeah. it's not very yeah, yeah the great line in uh the super s movie yes yeah i mean that's, there's a couple of really there's a couple of, i actually did a poll on twitter recently like which is the best <laughs> line like is it you know a world within haruka is not a world worth saving or is it you know you're getting heavy. I don't want to hear that outside bed. Or, <laughs> you know, I want you to treat me gently later when we're alone. <laughs> which is the which is the gayest line? I mean, yes. these are not innuendo. <laughs> like this is like hi. They sleep I mean, together. Yeah, it is explicit. <laughs> Um, like so that was really thing. when it all when it all really started. And then what happened was that late 1999, you had Utena right right on top yeah. of that again, Ikuhara. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, in 99 was also the Maria Samagamitiru novels. So in 2000, uh, in 2000, in the year I think it was I believe 2000 was Ibaru no Mori, uh, which is the third novel where we have Sei's very very tragic gay love affair which was beautifully written and I was blown away. I'm constantly blown away by, by Kono Ayuki's writing. She's really, really a very good writer. Um, and I don't say that about light novels of anybody else. I've never read another person who could write a light novel that's worth reading, but hers are amazing. Mm. And Say is an incredibly complex and interesting character. And she's as gay as the day is long. <laughs> and then of course we have uh, Shizuka as well. And so that series just kind of cemented it because we, of course Kono Yuki was referring back to the S aesthetic. And she was mm-hmm. using those couples and using those tropes and using the, the girls lit S aesthetic tropes very, very overtly and then making them modern and funny and interesting and engaging and charming all at the same time and then getting, getting us all really into it for 15 years and mm-hmm. almost what 40, I think it was 40 volumes of the books plus four seasons of the anime plus the multiple drama CDs. And that's incredible. It's on and on and on. And, and, great great stuff so by that time then you really had a yuri fandom and because maria samagamitiru resurrected the aesthetic whole mm-hmm. all in and of itself understanding all the trips she she writes so intelligently she completely understands every single reference she's putting in there so if you're a japanese fan you know what she's doing with this and so that was when i'm writing on my blogs if i want you to understand this this resurrected s the whole s mm-hmm. aesthetic and then what happens immediately is that people who aren't as good immediately run with it and so you get things like kanazuki no miko uh which is uh two of the most talentless hacks in anime manga cool. making uh, an amazingly bad good weird popular series Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 it's good. It's good stuff, but it's also really terrible at the same time. And then they get worse and worse and worse, and they're just keep taking and they're hacking it to death in their own <laughs> their own aesthetic. And then you get parodies of that, and parodies of those, and parodies of those, and then you know, and then you know, flipping and then and digressions, and and it just and it just goes crazy. So by two thousand and three, which is now right before the Maria Samagamitiru anime, you have a magazine called. Yurishimai comes out. It's the first mm-hmm. Yurishimai magazine ever. And it comes out quarterly. So there's a couple of issues before Maria-sama and Gamiteru 
anime hits and goes kaboom all around <laughs> uh, Japan and here in America too. And then you have Yurishima is around for two years. It's doing well. It's totally successful, but the company decides they don't want to do it anymore and they sell it whole to Ichijinja, who mm -hmm. changes the name to Yurihime. Mm -hmm. A couple of years later, they relaunch Yurihime and Yurihime S. And now, then they relaunch again in 2011 as Comic Yurihime. And now, as of, 19, of 2017, it's been monthly. It's been the only monthly manga magazine. And in between there, you had a bunch of other magazines come and go and things grow and change. And, and now we've got an industry in which more publishers than ever in Japan and America are pounding out as much Yuri as you can. It's, it's a growth industry. It's still mm -hmm. incremental growth. It's not going to be like BL because it appeals to a different set of niches, but it appeals to multiple sets of, of small niches. Yeah. So you've got this, we're just really in a boom year. And for this year, 2019, to be the 100th anniversary in the middle of one of the most massive growth spurts Yuri has ever had, you have Comic Hime as a monthly, you have Galette, which is a creator-owned, crowdfunded uh, Yuri quarterly magazine which is just fantastic in japan mm -hmm. and then you have just all this manga being licensed in a way that i've just never seen it's extraordinary it's incredible it's like such a recent thing too like it was in 2010 really where there was like a first publishers were like really bringing over like yuri like after alc like one of the other publishers really were bringing over more yuri titles it was about 2007 or 8 i think when um seven seas initially tried mm. with their strawberry line and it wasn't their fault. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a long story, but Japanese publishers have a, had a tendency, and some still have, some of the larger ones particularly, have a tendency to make you prove your loyalty by giving you a really shitty title, mm. one that's not likely to sell really well. Publish this and show that you're, you know, that, that you'll do what we want you to do the way we want to do it. And then once you've done that, then you know we'll give you the titles you actually want. And it's a really self-destructive policy because in america we don't have that kind of money because you have to understand japanese publishing companies the manga publishing is one piece of a larger publishing company in right. america we don't have that right in, the, in north america the manga publishing companies that's all they do they're very small up till very recently none of them had larger investors i mean that's not mm -hmm. true anymore the landscape has changed so viz has japanese yeah. investors and hatchet group owns a yen and um uh, Seven Seas is also has investors, so you have a much different landscape now, where they have more mm -hmm. money and and more choices. But up to that point, um, it was it became very difficult because we give you something sort of okay. Here's this like I, I constantly refer to Viz being given in Fire Inspector Nanase as uh, mm -hmm. you know here publish this, and then we'll give you the actual title you want. Why would I waste my time as an American publisher publishing something that's a loss? And it's not a lost leader. It's not going anywhere. It's just gonna I'm gonna put out however many thousand copies, and they will just go straight to the pulp mill. Nobody's buying it. Hmm. And um, and do do you all remember Fire Inspector Nanase? Everybody hands up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nobody remembered that. So, so it was just something they had to do to show that they were were loyal. Um, that's mm -hmm. not really true anymore. That's changed a lot. Things have Thankfully. changed a lot on both sides. But what happened was the Japanese publishers had to change the way they do things. The American publishers got bigger and got investment money, and then they could take bigger risks. So, 2007, Seven Seas tried, and it kind of failed. But they came back again in in about 2010 or 11, mm -hmm. and 
as it picks up, they're doing better and better. And of course, they got my lesbian experience with loneliness, which yes. was a massive hit for them as it mm -hmm. was for East Press. What happened in Japan was East Press was it was so successful that Shogakukan licensed the sequel. Mm -hmm. Now, Shogakukan is the biggest publishing company in Japan. It's also the most monolithic. Right. So there's all sorts of stuff going on there where the way they do things is completely different with East Press, which is a small publisher. And they were like, sure, whatever you want, we'll do whatever. Shogakukan is really, really monolithic. So the decisions that Seven Seas has to make are different and not always what they want to do, too. Uh, so it's so very interesting because bigger publishers licensing your stuff sounds great. You know, sure, right. making more money as an artist, but I, she probably has less control. Yeah. The way she was with a small publisher. Especially because Lesbian Experience, that was, you know, cheap self-published that first before East Press picked it up. But now, like, working directly with a bigger publisher, there might be more restrictions or more. Oh, well, that, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like, so there's a little less freedom there. Oh, a lot Though less I freedom. still feel... Particularly with Shogakukan. Yeah. Though I still feel that Solo Exchange Diary, you know, it still feels authentic. But I imagine oh. the process of working with them is still a lot more complications than when she, you know, self-published it originally. Did you read the second volume yet? I haven't read the second volume yet. There is a wonderful moment at the end, a, a very moving, where she is talking to her editor. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to spoil it. I want you all to please read my Solo Exchange Diary, Volume 2. Um, none of her work is easy reading. I mean, it's, no. it's very, very painful and hard. Yeah. And I respect her deeply. It's just not light reading. But I want you to read all the way through. Make sure you read all the way through because there's a moment where she talks to her Shogakukan editor who says something that changes her life. Mm. And it makes you understand the role a Japanese editor has. I'm trying to figure out how I'm trying, what I want to say here. The role that Japanese editors have is much more foundational than American editors. Mm. American editors they aren't part of the creative process initially, usually. Mm. And I'm not saying this 100% across the board because that's not always true, but in a lot of ways. But in Japan, the editors are very much part of the, of the creation process and handhold and cajole and stroke authors all the way through the process. And the editor really steps up and says something really meaningful. And I, I want you all to read that. So go read Solo, My Solo Exchange Diary, Volume 2, because it's, I think, really worth reading. Yeah, I though I, I really love Lesbian Experience and the first book. So I, I drag my feet on the second book just because it is like... It's hard. It's heavy. It's yeah. heavy stuff. And it doesn't get less yeah. heavy. This is a woman who's struggling with a lifetime. Mm. This, is, this is a disease that is not going away. Yeah, it's there's no cure for depression. There is there is treatments. She's clearly trying. There's probably no guarantee that she'll be functional. I mean, this is she knows it. We know it. It's hard stuff. We can't make it better. And if you've ever been depressed or or you know someone who is, you know that you know. Our, our our culture generally tends to think of things as being very temporary. Diseases are, are temporary spaces between health. But if you've never been healthy, we don't have a lot of places where people understand that. Um, if you talk to someone who's been chronically ill their whole lives, 
they will explain to you that, that there is no space in which being chronically ill is acceptable. You know, people get tired of hearing it and people get tired of, of you carrying this weight with you. And they want you to just, you know, feel better. And it's, it's not like that. And so she does a really, really good job of, of kind of explaining what it's like living with that in a really, really, I mean, her, her, her depression is so overwhelming. It's so constant. So it's not like it's a simple thing that where it's, it's not periodic. It's not seasonal. It's not situational. It's constant. It's a constant. She's living with it, you know, every day of every moment. So it's, it's a really, it's again, that's why I think the comic essays are so important, particularly in Japan, where that kind of illness mental illness is not spoken of it's not dealt with and you do all this stuff privately and quietly by yourself and you your family deals with it quietly by themselves to have these comic artists talk about what it's like to be diagnosed and treated and not treatable um is just it really is resonating with a lot many 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 millions of people in japan who have these things and would understand what it feels like and thought they were alone or just couldn't bring themselves to tell that story yeah it's so important for people to understand what it is actually like to live with mental illness and flat to have that daily battle like yeah. with yourself with these thoughts um you know and these thoughts that can push you over the edge there's also a whole genre here in america called graphic medicine that's yeah. doing the same thing we're talking about people dealing with life-altering illnesses and um and family family members being exceedingly ill and dying and and i i recommend you all go to graphicmedicine.com and and take a look at some of the stuff that's out there because it's seeing it visually represented is is different it makes it mm. puts it in a different space in your head when if you've got a family member who's suffering from cancer for instance and you read a book about somebody who's dealing with their cancer it changes the way you approach everything mm. you know how you think about it and how you think about them and, and I think it's worth doing it. I think it's worth surfacing these messages. And that's that's true for everybody. And that's why I think comic essays is so important, uh, particularly for marginalized communities like people dealing with mental illness or chronic illness, people who are disabled, people who are ethnic minorities, people who are queer, any area that's in which you are marginalized, having somebody tell a story that is similar to yours lessens the burden. Because mm -hmm. you you know you're not alone. Mm -hmm. That other people are dealing with this, and yeah, exactly. you can you can look to their stories for inspiration or at least just catharsis. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that's really. I mean, there's there's a certain amount of. I mean, there's a lot. I think a lot of people. I was totally wrong. I want to say when Lesbian Experience when I first read Lesbian Experience in Japanese, somebody said, "Oh, I hope this gets licensed." And I thought, "There's no way." This is, I'm like, really, are we going to license this story? It was licensed and it blew up. Yeah. Clearly, it was resonating with a lot of people. And I was 1,000% wrong because I did not think it would do that here. And boy, was I wrong. So good for me, that good for the world. And I'm happy for everybody that, that it did so well. Both Lesbian Experience and My Brother's Husband by Gengar Tagami, I think, were such huge successes that I mm -hmm. think it'll pave the way for more LGBTQ themed works to be brought over and be spread more widely. Yes. And Yuri, especially as a genre, I think has increasingly become more prominent. But now I think that it's kind of in a renaissance where we're getting so many more works and so many of them are incredibly popular and doing very well. And there's a lot of and the community is very big and like vibrant now. Yep. Uh, so 
I think that this is like a really great time to be a Yuri fan because we're getting so much of it. And there's so many different types of stories to enjoy. And yes. now we're at the stage where like some of the tropes that have, you know, been common in your manga are being challenged. And also we're just at a stage where so many more stories are happy and really about these characters, like in our relationship and just the experiences of being in a relationship and like being happy together. Like the Kazi-san series by Hiromi Takeshima. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Just a, a series just about them working through their relationship and working through real things, right? Not yeah. just, it's not it's not ridiculous stuff. It's like, yep, I remember that. A lot yeah. of that, a lot of that story. The reason I I named it number one so many years in a row was that it was just stuff that we all remember, mm -hmm. you know. And and I thought, well, how authentic and how how real. Again, at TCAF, I'm going to be interviewing. Uh, Takashima Sensei as part of a creator spotlight. I cannot wait. Um, I've sent them the questions. I'm hoping that she'll do an Okazu interview as well. Um, she's uh, just really hit a lot of notes. And um, I hope deeply from the bottom of my heart that Pony Canyon puts out an official U.S. release. Yes. The Japan release of Asagawa Tokasa-san, the, the DVD and Blu-ray, do have English language subtitles. And it's not that expensive. So if you look up, you go onto Okazu, you go Asagawa Tokasa-san, and you buy it from on, from Japan, there was a period of time where the shipping was like five bucks. So it was like $60 for the Blu-ray. And I didn't, including the shipping, it was not much. Um, so it wasn't like it was a real hardship to buy. It's so worth it. It is so worth it. When I saw it at Anime NYC, I'd already seen it, but I got to see it at Anime NYC with the producer and the director right there. And they were delightful. Yeah, I, I remember it was a great experience watching it. Wasn't it? Without all those people? Yeah, yeah. And I love the Q&A. The questions that the audience had were very good, too. But, like, I they remember, were. like, the last one was this uh, queer woman who, like, was asking the director, you know, I, I thank you so much for making uh, this story. You know, I don't see myself represented in uh, anime and media so often. And they were asking, like, what was your idea behind, like, telling this story? Like, what were you trying to express? And the director was like, you know, we wanted to show that love was universal. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, really captured those experiences. And also, you know, the comment of why they took out some things in the manga. That like, was my favorite moment. Mm -hmm. That was great. To, like, concentrate on the unified theme of, like, these two central characters. Yeah. The story is not about jealousy. It's about just love between these two people and them, like, working uh, through that relationship. And the line that he said at that moment was, it's about a relationship developing and communication within that yes. relationship. How people in a relationship learn to communicate with mm -hmm. each other. I thought, wow, bam, excellent. Yeah. That Beautiful. was exactly it. What I liked about it was watching the audience because I had already seen the mm. movie like three times. <laughs> I have the deep side, watch the Blu-ray and the DVD. And getting to see the audience reactions, I had somebody in front of me who was just absolutely adorable. It was like every emotion. <laughs> he had all the feels. It was so cute. And the audience was so, it hit all the right notes. It laughed in the right places. You know, sometimes you go to a movie and like people are laughing at the wrong thing or whatever, you know. Right. I, I'm that person. I laugh at the wrong thing all the time. I, I, get, I get caught in things that are ridiculous and can't let go. But everybody was so into this movie yeah it was so delightful it was a good screening like it was a good people screen. resonated with the moments they were supposed to in mm -hmm. the right way and it was just it was so nice to see that i really hope they do a, a just a full american release but if they do not you can get the blu-ray and the dvd for relatively cheap and on amazon japan it's on our yurikon store under anime mm -hmm. 
It's on Okazu. I've reviewed it multiple times in DVD and, and the Blu-ray and the screening and everything. So so do consider, I know it's sort of a pain in the ass to ask you to go to uh, Amazon Japan and buy something, but this one thing, if you buy the Blu-ray, it's like 60 bucks with the booklet and shipping. It's really not expensive. Considering it's worth it's, it. It's worth every penny. It's an amazing 58 minutes, and you will find yourself not regretting a single moment. Casa mm-hmm. uh, is a great series. Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing what comes out of your interview with uh, Hiromi Takashima at TCAP. Yeah. Like, I don't know if uh, the panel will go online or a transcript will go online, but I'm going to be very curious to see, like, how that interview goes and, like, what uh, is talked about there. Yeah, you know, I really want to talk about her reactions to the reactions you know mm. i want to talk about her work process and stuff like that one of the things that i feel very strongly about with creator interviews is finding out how they feel about the things that have been done with their work and then you know and, and how they do it themselves because you know so often i feel like creator interviews talk about some other thing you know like oh, tell us about your personal life and while i understand people's desire to have that information you're never going to get that out of a, out of a Japanese artist anyway right so I'll really be focusing on her early work and then her 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 experiences working in in pure Yuri anthology Harari which is where Kasa-san was born and then I call the series the little series that could because it (laughs) it began in in a magazine that lasted three years it died The, the series kept going went online and it kept going on independently online and then it went to the publisher I want to say have been awesome Shinsokan has been 100% supportive of Yuri. They couldn't make Hirari work because paper prices went through the roof and they just didn't have the um, sales to support what they mm-hmm. were doing. Uh, and I totally supported that. But Shinsokan has been great. So they found space for it on their website, on Wings Web, and then they moved it back into, now it's in Wings Magazine. It's running back in the magazine and it's their lead magazine. Um, Shinsokan has been terrific. And then when Putty Canyon took it up and made the animation clip, they did an extraordinary job, and that's online on YouTube. And then they made the movie, and I think it's been the little series that could. This thing just kept chugging along. And when it came out in Japan, and I keep telling this story over and over, every time I've ever seen an anime movie come out in Japan, it's lasted one week in the theaters. Mm. It comes, it goes. It's one week, you watch it while it's there, and then it's gone. This series lasted two and a half months. That's awesome. In the movie theaters. Now, it wasn't every theater. I think the longest that lasted in any one movie theater was like seven weeks. But hmm. when you to- when you count the whole road show from beginning to end, it was in some theater somewhere in Japan for two and a half months. And I've never seen that kind of longevity on any anime movie ever of any kind. So, And they paired it a lot with all Liz and the Bluebird, which I also mm-hmm. watched and it was extraordinary oh, yeah. as well. Um, That's so, a beautiful film, too. It is. I was really surprised. I, I did not yeah. expect to like that as much as I did. So I'm I'm hoping we'll get to see a U.S. release. Maybe 11 Arts will pick that one up, too. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see uh, the film again on the big screen. So I hope it gets theatrical screenings over here. Or at the very least, a domestic release. But yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad the import is so cheap. I might have to bite on that. I think you really should, because honestly, this way you've got, it's got the English subtitles, and I, I, I understand that doing a separate U.S. release is, a, is sort of a pain in the ass, but when I talked to Pony Canyon and Anime NYC, they were they did not discount that idea, so mm-hmm. perhaps they will consider it, so well, fingers crossed Excellent. on that. Yeah, so that one's, that one's definitely our poster child for 2019, isn't it? 
It's sort of all yeah. the things. <laughs> it's all the things because it is all the things. It's a high school. It's, it starts in high school. It's a school love story, first love story, all the typical things. Um, and now they've moved into college. Yeah. And they're still together and they're still going strong. And they haven't changed as people, but they've matured. And we're still getting to enjoy them together, growing and maturing and uh, living together, uh, planning on living together later. So I feel like it's a series that's really been very much the poster child. Yeah, it's great to have a series where the characters are kind of growing with the audience. Yeah. Uh, it's like coming up on 10 years. Yeah, what she was saying, it's like they spent eight years in high school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, it'd be amazing to follow these characters through adulthood like even mm -hmm. beyond college and mm -hmm. i'm just glad that there is more stories like showing uh these couples grow up and still be couples past yeah. high school i mean because i get why they didn't and i remember when when morinaga milk's girlfriends ended there's a scene at the yeah. very end where mari at least thinks about well you know one day we'll have to deal with like coming out to family and you know dealing with society but we don't have to do that right now but at least she at least mentions it <laughs> And yeah. it's not that common until, you know, up till that point, because it's hard. I mean, especially if you're talking about when Girlfriends was being published, there were nothing, there's nothing, there's no laws that allow people to develop relationships. I mean, now we have a couple of towns, a couple of townships, a couple of areas in Japan that have some kind of partnership certificates, individual cities, but we don't have an, uh, an overarching countrywide partnership. It's not legal. Uh, it's not a definitive thing. You you know, locally it can be. It's it's uh, considered a nod, and they're being companies are, and departments are being asked to recognize it. So mm. you, it's really hard when people act like you should get over oppression when you're still living under it. Yeah, I don't. You know, know what I'm saying. <laughs> And I'm sure lots of people know what I'm saying <laughs> with that. Um, there's a lot of communities for which that becomes valid. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, don't don't look at me and say, get over it. I'm still under it. You know, it's, yeah. it's really, really impossible. So, so yeah, I mean, so I think them growing up and hopefully we get to see them navigating an adult world, not without problems, but succeeding together will be, will be part of the story going forward. I hope, I hope we see that. Mm-hmm. And also, there is now more Yuri stories about adults. Like, I oh, think yeah. uh, Yuri is My Job is a recent one. Uh, Yuri is My Job is not actually about adults. Oh. It's a high school story that's hysterical. It's about <laughs> a girl who is basically an asshole. She <laughs> she cares more about the image she presents than about her real Like, her real self is really kind of selfish and not very bright. Um, but she wants this image of being perfect. So her outside face is what she, her outside image is what she cares about. And through reasons, she ends up working at a cafe that is a Yuri theme. And it's based on a novel, mm. a series of novels about girls in a school in Germany. <laughs> and it's called Der Liebe Gakuen. And uh, she is a cafe slash student at this school and all this stuff. And um, it's very goofy. So it's very mm -hmm. tropey because they're actively playing out characters with tropes. So one of the characters is actually a gal in real life, but she's playing the bookish, very, mm -hmm. very, you know, cool kind of insinuating Onesama character. So right. she's like, she's that. Oh, and her 
uh, Himezu Onisama is really a very angry, angry person in real life. She's really, really angry. <laughs> and, but in real life, she has to play this, this very, you know, charming Lideshka beauty, graceful and lovely. So they're not playing out themselves at all. They're playing these stereotypes of Yuri tropes, which is really quite funny. Um, also really annoying, but also very funny. So I recommend I mean, that. That sounds great. It's like uh, kind of subverting these eerie tropes in a bit. Or at least playing. playing with them. Playing with them like in the same way the Whispering Words did, where they put all the yeah. tropes in one story and actually made a very good dramedy <laughs> out of it. Um, yeah, because that's what we are, because the tropes right. are part of our, our heritage at this point. So we, we better have some fun with them. But there are a lot of, just to your point, there are a lot of stories about eerie adults, uh, eerie stories about adults coming out in... Um, in Japan, there's one coming up in July called Yuri Life. It'll be coming out from mm. Yen Press. Uh, the the Japanese title is Yuri Gorashi, and it's literally a Pixiv comic about two women together. It's their life. It's just slice of life, and they're adorable, and nothing awesome. happens. There's no plot. It's little <laughs> vignettes because it's like quick four pages. It's all color. And the palette is fantastic, by the way. So I recommend when you pick it up, notice the palette of colors because it's really interesting. It's just a very sweet story about two people who are adults who live together. And it's nothing, nothing happens. It's a pure slice of life, but fun. And they're charming. You know, they're, they're fun. You actually get to know them. One of them likes really weird bugs and another one likes really strange slippers. You know, I mean, it's like stuff like, like you would have in real world stuff, you know? So that's a good thing to look out for. Yeah, kind of like Rick and Kanji, it's two queer people just living their living lives together. together and just, yes. you know, their experiences. Exactly, exactly. But another one I think that is coming out that I just remembered is uh, I Married My Best Friend to Shut, Shut My, my parents, parents Up. What an interesting story that was. That's by the same person as by uh, uh, Kodama Naoko, right? Yeah. Yeah, who did um, NTR, <laughs> which I did not like and never reviewed. Yeah. Um, for a lot of reasons, pretty much exactly <laughs> the same reasons I didn't like Citrus. Um, both mm. of those, the narrative only made sense if you talked about abuse, but neither of them talked about abuse. Yeah. NDR is an interesting uh, situation. It's like, I know that before, uh, in other places you've described it as not a Yuri series. Even though, it's like, not. It's a fetish. Netsuzo is a fetish that is just skeevy. It's, yeah. it's cuckolding. Mm. It's not, to me, it's not an interesting story. It's a skeevy fetish. Yeah. So basically the entire plot is two girls having sex in the other room while their boyfriends are in the other one. That's just gross. <laughs> like, mm. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm never going to like that. So no, no. Yeah. It's just like, what qualifies your manga is not simply the fact that it's like just two girls in the no. relationship. It's also it matters. Uh, like, what is the focus of the story is like in terms yeah. of like how the characters are explored, but also like the audience, like what? How it is directed to the audience, how it is presented to the audience, like the framing of the relationship. Yeah, exactly. And this was framed as a as a cuckold, and it was icky. Yeah. Um, and it was very abused. There was a lot of abuse going on, and 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 remnants of abuse. And and like Citrus, the story would have made a lot more sense had we just said X character has been abused. If we could have said this is the fr framework, but they just didn't, and it it felt like such an obvious giant piece that was missing. That, yeah. that it really just bothered me. And it felt like very, very coy. And I'm like, without that obvious statement, it just all doesn't work. But that particular artist, Kodama Naoko Sensei, has a tendency to make, to draw and write things that make me deeply uncomfortable. Her work has always made me deeply uncomfortable. And even when I like it, they're not unproblematic. And 
Um, I married my best friend to shut my parents off has some serious problematic stuff and some of it's dealt with and some of it isn't. And the ones, the bits that are dealt with, and I will not spoil anything. I do have a review uh, of the series in Japanese on Okazu if you want to be spoiled. The things that are dealt with, I think are dealt with well, and that really made it a lot better. Uh, mm. She still has some problematic issues and in her new work right now, Omineko Beso days is running in Kamakiri Hime. There's also some problematic things, and some of her problematic things are just weird fetishy things that appeal to people who are not me, you know, and there's nothing I can do about it. And some of them are just things that she herself does occasionally, just makes things really skeevy for me, even if it's a good story. So I, I, just, I married my best friend to shut my parents up, has some problems, and I think they address some of them and don't others. And I'll be very, very interested to see what people think of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to read that one because NTR is like a trashy read for me. <laughs> I like read that and it's like, it is so mean-spirited. Yes, you know? yes. It's, it's so <laughs> like unpleasant in terms of like the relationships are just not healthy and the characters are all incredibly manipulated. Yeah. But it's, I do like stories about terrible people. Okay, fair like, enough. Like messing with each other. So I, can, I could enjoy it on that level, but it's not... Fun. Yeah, it's not... When I want a romance, I want like a romance, a story about two people growing, right? Like being in a relationship with each other, and that's not. So it's not that's a romance. Not an well, you know, my my favorite problematic series about people who are terrible for each other. That's my favorite thing ever is Gunjo, mm. and I'm I'm really hoping one day we'll see that in English. There's um, it's two people who are terrible people. Uh, one of them is actually a horrible person. And when you find out why they're a horrible person it, and you feel bad about hating them so much, it actually makes you feel guilty, but they're still a horrible person. Right. <laughs> and that is really an extraordinary feeling where you're feeling guilty for hating them, but you really hate them anyway. And the characters are really, really bad for each other. And it's violent and it's it's horrible and it's lovely. It's one of the most sublime things I've ever read. And I described it years ago as eating the most delicious razor blades. <laughs> and that's also, I understand problem reads. I just, as it happens, because I don't like exploitative stuff, uh, I just couldn't deal with both Citrus and NTR on that same level where right. we have a character who obviously has been sexually abused. They are evincing all the behaviors of a person who was sexually abused, but we won't say it just to yeah. frame it correctly. You know, oh, neglected. No, <laughs> that's not what you do when you're neglected. You know, that's what you do when you've been actively sexually abused. So Yeah, exactly. And just like a real misunderstanding when depicting mental illness in manga, like the victims of abuse is like to, to excuse the abusive behavior of a person because they have a sympathetic reason or because they were abused in their past and saying oh no they can't be blamed for their actions mm. because of their history and they can't but like you just have to forgive them and accept them and then that that will be their change and no though they don't have to worse for their problems like it's not like it's a real misunderstanding of like how it works right and also it's very empathetic under understanding of like how a person is actually suffered this is one of the reasons i like gunjo because it doesn't let you off the hook that way mm -hmm. and and one of the things that happens is we learn some stuff and we we understand better why the person is the way they are but we don't we don't forgive them at all because you can understand doesn't mean that it's that they're making the right choices and some of the choices that are made are mm -hmm. destructive and 
it feeds yeah. into itself and again it becomes this recursive thing but anyway so so yeah i get it i mean i get that but i'll be interested to see what people think because i married my uh, best friend to shut my parents up is good and also not good and it'll be very very just nothing mm. really like ntr at all and i don't think anybody who liked ntr for itself will will be able to make a connection between one and the other there's no style it's that her style is in her art and the way she tells her stories, but it's it's um the two are not connected in any way. So it's a completely different piece and kind of more grounded in reality and a lot more grounded in reality than most pieces. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what the, the general reaction of that is. Yeah, I'll be curious to see like her write something taking it a little more seriously and not in a trashy way. It's kind of like with Gengar Tagami, like my brother's husband is so rad different than his bara. Oh, I know. And like the, the stories he wrote, he, you know, the porn he wrote, like a... Well, the porn, yeah, the porn he wrote is gay, they're called, they call them in Japan gay comics. So like, this is yeah. gay comics, right? There's no joking in here. It's not like this is anything else. It's like, it's gay porn. Right, but there's some real yeah. fetish stuff in that, like, uh, there's he he does some incest stuff. He does some really uh, weird power stuff in his his porn. So it's like my brother's husband's like such the antithesis of like that kind of the tone. In oh yeah, porn. yeah. It's just because it was a different it's, audience. It's surprising. You know, my yeah, brother's husband yeah. was for mainstream uh, male readership, uh, straight male readership. Uh, mm. When I was at um, Rainbow Pride in 2015, he was one of the speakers, and I was one of the speakers. And I was listening to him talk, and one of the questions was, of course, you know, what was the reaction? And he said, oh, people who liked it like it, and people who don't like it don't like it. Like, you know, that's, <laughs> and, and that's really, that's always, I mean, that was actually the same thing that Nakamura Sensei said about Bunjo. You know, there's always going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you wrote that. But he said mostly everybody was very sympathetic to it because he wrote it specifically, specifically for an audience that would never have ever considered this ever. That was what mm. it was for. It was for, it was not for gay people. And I know a lot of gay people who didn't like it because they were like, oh, well, duh. And I'm like, but it was not, I mean, in this case saying it's not for yeah. you, is, it seems gatekeeping, but the answer is, well, obviously, you know, this stuff, you know what it's like. I'm like, well, I didn't do this. And I'm like, but it was for a straight man who has never once thought of this ever. And the protagonist is Yaichi. It's yeah. for him. It's for all the men out there who are him. You know, it's trying to tell those men like, oh, I know you've never thought about this before, but here, someone in your family is gay right now and you don't know it. Mm -hmm. Or you know it and you're not dealing with it in here. And that's what that's about. And so, yeah, it's completely different. It's for a completely different audience than his, you know, minotaur porn. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's it's always very interesting to see how like creators' works evolve uh, when they write for a different audience or like as they continue to make new works, how their ideas change and kind of some stuff they're willing to do later on or some ideas that they refine later on. Well, and also things that they're allowed to do. Yeah, I exactly. mean, realistically, that's that happens once you've proven the success, then your editors go, well, OK, I'm going to trust you to be able to do this. And no one's going to let a new t new artist be really risky. And that's not, I shouldn't say nobody, but but it's it's less common for somebody to let a new artist be really risky. You have to sort of prove your chops first. Right. And especially when you're dealing with LGBTQ teams and like acceptance is such a recent thing and yep. like being having out characters is such a recent thing. Like you really need to like once you've proven success and once you just 
open the door just a tiny bit, and then the next time you come back and open it even a little bit further. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, like, it's been such a long road. It's amazing to think, like, in Western cartoons, we have Steven Universe. We have such amazing representation. Can I say Steven Universe is just absolutely stunning? I mean, my wife and I watch that on a loop, like, every day we watch it. Like, we watch (laughs) it all the way to the end, and we watch it back, and we start at the beginning. It's It's the thing that's keeping us sane in this administration. Yeah. You know? And it really, it hits so many buttons. I, I'm actually considering, very seriously, considering running an online course on Steven Universe. Like having people write papers and do, because there's so much. You know? So I was thinking what I was going to do is develop a curriculum. I'm seriously thinking about doing this over the summer. Developing a curriculum, running like two one-hour classes a week, doing papers on like Google Docs. Everybody could comment. I can't, I'm not going to grade the papers, but this way people could talk about stuff and, and present their ideas. And we're, each week we're going to talk about a different facet. We'll talk about the animation and we'll talk about the history. We'll talk about location. We'll talk about the art styles. We'll talk about the references and animation in both Japanese animation and, and Western animation, uh, music. Um, we could just talk about all the pieces of it. And then at the end, you know, like maybe like make it a, like a pay what you want kind of class mm-hmm. like i'll put a suggested price on it and then you know you can you can join for whatever you want i think it would be really cool because i'm like it's there's so much yes you know every time you peel a layer off of it there's just more and more and more and more and more it just goes on and on and, on. and i yeah. mean you could do a whole freaking lecture speaking of abuse so if we look at citrus and ntr and how they don't talk about abuse let's talk about Alone at Sea, uh-huh, yeah. which is about Lapis and the abuse that she's been through. With Jasper, yeah. With Jasper, and even before that. The portrayal of an abusive relationship is just right. so... It's unlike anything else that was ever, I think I've ever seen in a, a cartoon ostensibly for children. And, and then it's later on, you know, when we go to Homeworld and we see the dynamic between you know, all the diamonds and see, oh, this is an abusive family situation. There was a moment at the very end when Yellow is finally admitting what she feels, and she sounds like a four-year-old. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap. But watching Alone at Sea, I just literally sat there the whole time going, holy shit. (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't (laughs) believe it. Are they really going there? Oh, my God. I can't believe it. You know, that was so extraordinary. Yeah, it's... It's bounty pushing. It's just amazing. You could just talk about that one for hours. So I think yeah. that deserves all the wins ever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I took a television course, like a media analysis course. And like, as part of that, uh, we, you know, I had that we were given a choice of TV episodes to like do a paper on, to analyze uh-huh. and like dissect and do paper on. And there was no animation on that list. Like it was all just live action series. So I pitched my teacher, you know, here are some uh cartoons episodes that I think have a lot to say and uh, would be valuable to add to this curriculum. Cool. And uh she picked a Steven Universe episode, she picked Stevani. Oh, excellent. And I was very happy about that cuz yeah, there's just so much to like in any given episode, but that one fantastic episode. I mean, really, there's so many fantastic episodes, and the only ones we don't like are basically Onion. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're not big fans of Onion in this house. Onion or uh, Ronaldo gets a little tired. Ronaldo, yes, no, Ronaldo. He screams a lot. Yeah. Only yeah. though his line "not for a fourth time" makes us laugh every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not for a fourth time. We're like every time she he says that. I know. I feel like that one was ad libbed. <laughs> I don't know if it was, but it was brilliant. Uh, mm. Yeah. No. There's there's so much, I and mean, there's just, you could. I mean, Lapis alone could be a, a master's degree. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when she's standing there and the diamonds, the blue diamond is hitting her and she goes, I felt worse. That's the most devastating and amazing line. You know, yeah. it's just, it's so strong. Like, you could just go on for, I mean, really, I, I would like to go on for like eight weeks about this course because uh, it's just, it's, it's such a great cartoon. But yeah, cartooning has changed. Adventure Time and, yeah. and Steven Universe and She-Ra and even like Star versus the Forces of Evil, which put yeah. a gay kiss in a background scene that was really visible. I'm like, cartoonists, man. Yeah, Kate's cartoons have truly pushed the boundaries. Like, there are, there are just openly queer characters in shows now. Like, and we don't have to hide. We can, we had a wedding in Steven Universe. Isn't that, wasn't that great? I sing that song all the time. Groundbreaking landmark event. It's like, it's, we come so far than just like a decade ago where we had, you know, characters who were coded queer in kids' cartoons, but they could never be out. Like, we right. had the teacher in Hey Arnold. Like, only at the end of Legend of Korra could we say that Korra and Asami we're a couple. Right. You know, we've just, it's come so far. I mean. Yeah, it and is. Also, a thing to talk about in Steven Universe is you can look at the influence, like, your anime on Steven Universe. You can oh, look absolutely. at well, Utena, Obviously, Utena all over yeah. the fucking place, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like <laughs> that's so massively obvious, but there's a lot of other stuff in there, too. Yeah. You know, and just, I, I really feel like it just hits so many buttons on so many levels that it really deserves a class. You know, I really, I'm mm-hmm. like, somebody has to hire me to teach this class. I would totally do this. I, I have to, I have a friend who's a teacher um, at the high school and college level, and I want to sit down and create a real curriculum with her. Excellent. Um, and, and definitely, I figure it'd be something to get us through those periods when we don't have Steven Universe. We talk about <laughs> so yeah, um, no, I agree. I agree. Steven Universe is, is amazing. Um, and I'm going to go back after we're done here and watch some more She-Ra. So yeah, that's, I think things have really changed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm so happy that we're in this place now where we can ha- have such ready access uh, in like main, mainstream culture to queer representation and queer media. Yep. And I think like Yuri, it's just amazing to like trace back to, the roots of it all and like the tropes and like, you know, we, we could explore these subversive ideas, but we had to get it back to like this heteronormative ending where we kill off our gays or, you know, because right. the expectation is, you know, the girls have to grow up to get married and fit into this rigid patriarchy. And now like just over the decades, we've had more people say, no, let's subvert these ideas. Let's challenge these ideas of gender. Yeah, challenge more than subvert. Let's, yeah, let's just challenge. say the things we want to say. Yeah. You know, and let's let's actually just say them out loud. And I think that's really massively important is that, you know, we've ha- we have a world where people are. I want to say this clearly for anybody who's listening. In every generation, people have wanted to tell these stories and done mm-hmm. this. They've been doing this since day one. Now space is being made for those stories to be shared in a more mainstream way. And that is a significantly different thing than people are finally telling their stories. Don't imagine, and I mean this so sincerely, don't imagine it's never been done before. It's always been Mm -hmm. done over and over and over. If you're a a girl who, you know, feels like you want to cross-dress, don't think that your story's never been told. One of the earliest lesbian novels in the the early 20th century was Well of Loneliness about a woman who cross-dressed. So don't Mm -hmm. think that you're alone and that no one's done your story. No one's done your story tell your story but don't imagine you're the first person to tell it you're move, you're living in a world now where your story might be given room to be shared and yes. that is different embrace that 
and get your stuff out there, but don't imagine you're the one breaking those boundaries. You've had them broken for you by a hundred years of women writing. And 1920 was Well of Loneliness, and 1920 was Yana Shoujo. These women mm-hmm. were doing this when there was no spaces for this. Mm-hmm. They broke that wall for you. And the women who who were in the sexual revolution were talking about about queer work and uh, and lesbian stories and gay stories and these stories were done before you were born to make space for your stories. So don't look at me when you've handed me another girl meets girl, girl falls for girl, girl likes girl. The end and say, well, nobody was doing the story I wanted to read. A thousand of those, a million of those have been done. Yay that you've done yours. I'm glad, but you're not the first, you're just the newest, and that's excellent and fabulous. But at this point, I don't ever want to hear someone say, nobody's done this story before, because the answer is that's not true, you just didn't know about it. That's a different thing because there was no space for it. Now this stuff is out there, and it's coming out faster than ever before, so it's on fans to make that available. So what I do now is I buy these books, and sometimes I buy extra copies and give them to my library. Awesome. So my library gets them out to other people. When I bought Wandering Sun, I gave it to my library and I said, this gets to you on one condition. I bought a whole separate set for my library. I said, this must be front facing in the library. When people walk in, they must see it. Mm -hmm. And so the section of books that it's in, when you walk into the main reading room, the young, the young adult comics are right there. And Wandering Sun is practically one of the first things you see. And I wanted that available to every single person who walked in to the library. And it's going to change, of course, one day it's going to get moved. That's fine. But for at least these years, it's been right there up front. I wanted people to see this trans narrative comic, mm-hmm. you know, and right in the front and where anybody could reach it in the YA section, you know, and not hidden or whatever. My, my library has been awesome. They've been really, really wonderful about that sort of thing. But it's very, very important to me to get to share to get this stuff out there. And that's one of the reasons I keep writing Okazu is to share what I know. I just posted this week's news report, which is about what's coming up and what you need to know and what you can read and where you can read it and what's coming out in English and what's coming out in Japan so that you can see what's happening. Um, another publisher who's just joined in English, the Yuri landscape. So we have, we have Viz, we have Kodansha Comics, we have um, Yen, uh, Seven Seas, of course, is killing it. And uh, Shimanami Tasagari is coming. Shimanami yes. Tasagari, our, our dreams of Tusk. Oh my God! Everybody listening to this, you <laughs> must, must, must buy five copies. Keep one, give one to your local library, and then give the other three away to people you love. Mm-hmm. Do that across the board. This is going to be the best comic of 2019. I'm excited for it. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. It's fantastic. I was, I loved every volume, but the first one and the last one just blew me the hell away. I'm sorry it's only four volumes, but it's worth every single page. That's awesome. Yeah. But you're absolutely right that, you know, these stories have always been around, and it's just our responsibility as fans to share them and uh, make them visible for Mm -hmm. others. And also to look back at the history and, like, celebrate all the creators and all the people who are telling these stories in times where these spaces, you know, they weren't readily available, but they made those spaces and then that's allowed more people to come in over the years to come in and keep telling more stories and just continue to expand the kinds of stories that can be told. Yes, exactly. That is exactly right. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good place to wrap up, don't you? (laughs) I do, though. There there, are some follow-up questions 
What are some stories in Yuri that haven't you haven't seen yet, but you'd like to see? Oh now, my I, god! Before you mentioned Don't MMA, get me started. I just, I, I, yes, but before you mentioned MMA, I just wanted to ask: Have you ever read the manga Tepu? No. Ah, oh, I, I would really recommend Tepu, like if okay. you like MMA manga, uh, okay. because it is about like a like two women in this MMA. And like they are gay, very gay. Uh, okay. At the climax of the manga, like it's like they're walking the ring in front of each other, and they're in like wedding dresses. You know, uh. there's a visual where they're like in wedding dresses. It's like it's really great, and uh, it's just Excellent. about like this this very driven protagonist who is who is very motivated, very competitive, and kind of a, a not a great person, but that what's what makes her so compelling like just her drive to be the strongest to be the best it's like it's a very great read i hope it gets licensed one of these days because cool that's like kind of the yuri sports manga that you just don't see enough well of. that's like, the that's exactly what i was gonna say the thing yeah. i don't have <laughs> is a yuri sports manga it's the thing that i'm i'm missing in my life <laughs> that's the one thing that i want more than anything else is a brilliant yuri sports manga what are some sports you love to see, like this? So I've done this one too. I've I've written out of the list of, <laughs> of potential Yuri sports manga. So the ones I want, um, I think are are probably going to be end up being kind of obvious. So like rugby would be a good one. Softball, golf, tennis. I think you could do a couple really good ones on. Um, well, you could have done ice skating, but fucking Yuri on ice has ruined that permanently, hasn't it? <laughs> So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot that can be done. I mean, there's there's a lot of sports that... Oh, swimming is another good one. Mm-hmm. Let's see, what else did I have on my list here? I mean, I think, you know, football, ping pong has some classic Yuri uh, roots. So pretty much any of those would be good. Tennis, of course. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of there's a couple of series that already exist that, that really sort of set the scene for some things. Mm-hmm. So Yuri sports, yeah, that's what I want. So what's it called? Kepu? K-E-P-P-U? Tepu. T-E-P-P-U. Okay. I'll take a look at it. Sounds great. Oh, yeah. Highly recommended. Okay. And then also, what are some of your favorite Yuri manga and like some of your favorite uh, scenes moments in Yuri manga? Oh, God, that's really hard. <laughs> uh, I don't do that. Well, my favorite Yuri manga ever, it's my favorite manga ever is Gunjo. I think it's one of the mm. finest things I've ever read. And I hope one day very soon we'll, we'll see that in English. So that would be really great. Um, and I liked it because... It's a very violent and very um, intense, emotionally intense manga. And the moments of quiet, the moments of tenderness between the violence and the activity are so extraordinary. Mm. Everything about it is an extraordinary experience. And like I said, I've described it as eating the most delicious razor blades. It's a very difficult manga, but really, really the best thing I've ever read by far and away. Um, other things that I really like, uh, you know, gosh, I read so, 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 so many. I like that there's a Yuri horror thing going on now, a little renaissance in Yuri horror and lesbian horror as well. Uh, mm-hmm. and as I mentioned, Emily's, Emily Carroll's, uh, when I arrived at the castle is a new thing out. Um, it's a, it's a horror book. And I feel like, I feel like lesbian horror needs to arrive. Uh, that yeah. would be, that would be something, you know, Carmilla is actually the oldest vampire novel. It's older mm-hmm. than Dracula, and uh, I think it's it's actually a pretty weird read. Sheridan Le Fanu is a really <laughs> odd guy, but I think lesbian horror's time has come. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a thing that I'd like to see a lot of, and obviously some senior areas I think we're missing, but things that I really like, I like, it's so hard to even express because I just read so, so much. Um, 
I really like stories that take a different approach to how people communicate. One of the things I'm reading right now is called Goodbye Dystopia. It's running in Kamakirihime. And it's two women whose backstories we don't know who are traveling together, not for any purpose. And we're getting dribbles here and there of the things they're trying to leave behind. But we don't know that it's not told. We have to extrapolate a lot and interpolate more. But we also just get these long lingering periods of nothing in this story where they're just wandering through what appears to be a post-apocalyptic landscape until they need a new shoe so they go to the mall. It's amazing. It's an amazing series um, that in which absolutely very little is happening and it's just remarkable. And I, I love that series. I love that series for the moments where you get page after page of absolutely no conversation whatsoever. <laughs> uh, that kind of thing is really, really great. And I guess I really just like that sort of thing where where, where it's evocative. Mm-hmm. So like uh, Yokohama Shopping Log, which I can't imagine we don't have translated into English yet. Um, it's, yeah. it's a travesty that that is not yet in English. And nothing happens. That is the, the biggest nothing ever happens. There are literally <laughs> entire volumes in which not a single thing happens. So grass, grass grows and is blown by the wind. And they're like, that's all that happened. And that's a great series. So I, I really like series that um, rethink how communication happens and why communication happens, how time passes. I like things that are nonlinear. I like that Yuri science fiction is on the rise. Um, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that Science Fiction Magazine had a Yuri special issue last winter. So the Japanese science fiction magazine focused on Yuri and nothing but Yuri stories. And they were all not what I thought. I thought I, I had an expectation of them being horrible and really none of them were horrible. And all of them were weird and interestingly <laughs> thoughtful, thought-provoking. And so that was really good. Um, and that's, I guess, what I really like most is when somebody does something that I didn't expect. Because when you've read thousands of Yuri manga, thousands, uh, you do start to expect certain things. And of course, I've just read right. so many tens of thousands of books. After a while, you start going, okay, well, I kind of expected that. And so when you do things that are unexpected, I think like something like the end of the TV series, uh, Monica TV series, the Puella Magi mm-hmm. Magica Monica, Monica uh, Magica. The yeah. end of the TV series was unexpected to me. It was thoughtful. It was the right answer to the question that had been posed by the series. How do you work your way out of a logic, an illogical logic problem? And the answer is to be illogical in a different way. And that was so thoughtful and unique. And it ended, it ended a cycle, it ended the series. It didn't do the Kanazuki no Miko thing where it was like, oh, wait, whoops, we're going to do this all over again, you know? It ended it. And I just thought it was so incredibly thoughtful and interesting. And that, to me, every series presents a question or a problem. How do you find your way out of that? And how do you find your way through that? The thing, the, the stories that interest me the most are how do you get to that end and how do you make it work? And when they're really good, like Gunjo, the end of Gunjo was exactly perfect. Man, that sounds awesome. 780 pages, and the ending was a nailed. It was a 10 out of 10. You really sold me on Gunjo in particular now. I'm really hoping to be able one day soon tell you that it's gonna that it's coming out in English. That's all I'm gonna say. I hope so. Now that more publishers are like licensing more Yuri, hopefully they look back at some of the older yeah. stuff and bring it out here. Yep. Yeah. yeah. 
So that's that's my thought on that. Awesome. Those are great recs that I'm keen to check out. But for maybe some Yuri newbies, and I think this will be our final question here before we wrap up, what manga would you recommend to new readers, and what are some resources you recommend to people interested in learning more about Yuri's history? Okay. I'll do the second question first. Uh, On the YuriCon essays page, yuricon.com slash essays, we have collected all the references in English that we have and that we've written on Yuri and related topics like the lesbian community in Japan and and gay queer comics related to Japanese manga. All of that is in one place. So I recommend going there. Where it's available, I have links directly to the full text. Some cases you would have to purchase it. But everything that I've done, everything that's been done, is there on yuricon.com essays page. That's where you go for all the the information. And we've done our very, very best to create a body of scholarship there so that people can use it for their own continuing scholarship. Um, and I hope, hope 2019 will see the end of the, what I'm jokingly referring to as the big book of Yuri. I am working on the definitive collection of essays on the history of Yuri. And I'm hoping to uh, have that published next year. We'll see. Fingers crossed. So That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm very excited about that. And what I'm going to do is I've got a bunch of publishers that I'll, I'll pitch to if, if nobody wants it. And that could conceivably happen. Of course, I will just publish it myself. But we'll do a Kickstarter and all that other stuff. And and we've got, I've already got a lot of stuff planned for that. So it, it's going to be a pretty chunky book full of a lot of the essays I've written over the years about various series. Like when I've done like a 25-year retrospective of Utena will be in there, or um, the history of lesbianism and mental illness in Yuri, like essays like that, mm-hmm. and plus other things like the history of Yuri magazines in Japan and stuff, and, and how we got from newsletters in, lesbian newsletters to Yuri magazines. There's a whole con- continuum there. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing that I'm uh, I'm hoping to do in the next couple of years, and you'll, you'll have that available to you. The other thing for beginners, now this is always hard because recommendations are very hard for me. I don't tend to recommend things because I don't like what most people like and what Mm. most people like is not what I like. What I do every year at the end of the year is I have a category on Okazu. The categories is a drop-down menu on the right side. Um, On Okazu is my top 10 lists. At the end of every year, I collect the top 10 anime, the top 10 manga, and then the top 10 of all Yuri things, which sometimes are people or publishers or magazines or other things um, or events. And then I do that at the end of every year to cap off the year. Um, that's the closest thing I have to recommendations because that kind of is like the best this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I was going to say, if you want to understand sort of all the tropes, like all the old tropes, if you want to understand S tropes of Yuri, uh, for a, a modernized version of classical tropes of Yuri, I would recommend Sweet Blue Flowers by Shimura Takako. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a four-volume set out by Viz Manga. They've done the definitive version of it. And when you read that, what you're reading is a modern version of S Aesthetics. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things about the book I like. There are a lot of things I don't like. It was a classic, but it was done in 2004. It only came out last year um, in English, but it was done in 2004. And it, we've set it aside. So it's a it's a foundational piece. After that, I would go with Whispering Words from One Piece books, and that is a three-volume series that is a dramedy. It is hilarious (laughs) and devastating, 
and has the best ending ever. <laughs> uh, it's really just, it's the the most perfect ending. It really is. It's the kind of ending that you even go, hurrah! Like, that was just great. And what it does is it's all the tropes. It is all the tropes, all of them, all at once, all happening at the same time. That and great. it is both hilariously funny and very, very depressing and sad. And then it's fantastic. Is there a knife fight? No, no knife fights. <laughs> Nobody dies. No Aww. knife fights. No, so there's one missing. No, no pulp tropes, but it is all the Yuri tropes, all of them. So I would say that once you've read Sweet Blue Flowers, go read Whispering or Whispered Words, you know, Whispered Words from One Piece books, and that will give you all the tropes again, but but as a dramedy, as a, again, another modern version. And I think that will kind of catch you up on all of it. Mm-hmm. And then you can go play with uh, Yuri's My Job, which is excellent. And also funny and weird novel. Again, taking the Yuri tropes and playing with them, parroting them as it's using them in a totally different way uh, and another original story. And then on top of that, when, when Yuri Life comes out from Yen Press, I would say add that. That would be a nice slice of life adult. So you've kind of gone, grown up. Um, and then above all, Kasasan, uh, Morning Glories, Kasasan and Morning Glories. And that yeah. series, the Kasasan series is definitely excellent. And I recommend that highly. And that one is out from Seven Seas. And I think I've caught all the publishers. <laughs> is that one of everything? That's Viz, Bien, so. Kodansha, Seven Seas, and One Piece. And as of this week, DMP is going to be putting out some Yuri Dojinshi. Yeah, though, DMP. You know. Yeah, I know, exactly. And I actually say that <laughs> when I wrote the news. Um, I have issues, and I'm going to be really honest. I think they're they're very sketchy. Yeah. So, but they're doing straight up doujinshi, so it's up to you if you want to read it. But at least it's out there. They're they're in the Yuri field. So I think that's everybody. Yeah. It's, if I missed any of the publish out there, I apologize. Except for Dark Horse. Yeah. Uh, Dark Horse is just like oh, their name. Uh, well, they they do the Korra. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's true. I guess yeah, you can count that as Yuri. It's not necessarily manga, but yeah, it's, it's Yuri. It's it was, oh, I, I totally yeah. included in Yuri. It's it's we we sell it on the shop. They actually are putting out what they call the library edition of of the Turf Wars, mm. which I recommend because it's a, a single volume. I'm not a big fan of pamphlet comics anymore, mm-hmm. and 70 pages was was just on the edge of my toler- tolerance for too, squeezing too much into a little space. So you could get the whole story as one library edition in a hardcover, about 220 pages. And that is, I think, not a bad deal um, from Dark Horse. So that's, yeah, that's Dark Horse too. And and also, let me also say that if you like Yuri, look at American comics, too. For mm-hmm. God's sakes, there are tons of lesbians writing comics. Jennifer Camper is a brilliant, brilliant artist. Emily Carroll just has her new book. There is so much out there. Don't just stick with with manga. There's so, so much American and Canadian and European. Oh, my God. The European <laughs> gay community comics. Oh, my God. There's a new book out recently that I'm dying to get my hands off. It's called Revolution Fighting Fascism, LGBTQ Fighting Fascism in World War II. Hmm. Resistance. Resistance. And it's about, it's about gay folks in World War II fighting against the Nazis. Awesome. And it's all real stories. Comics. Come on. <laughs> How awesome is that? So do, do, yeah. do look at comics. And that's, there's so much. There's so much. Don't ignore what's out there because you think it doesn't exist just look 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 go to amazon use the people who bought this bought this and just keep going go down that rabbit hole 
Mm -hmm. you will find so much. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. There are all sorts of stories out there in the world of comics. And, yeah, don't yeah. just stick with the narrow spectrum of manga. Because there, in Western comics, there's been a huge history of LGBTQ works. Absolutely. That's just Absolutely. Amazing. Gay comics is a thing. And if you're interested... If you're interested in the history of gay comic, queer comics in, in the world, and I mean in the world, come to Queers and Comics in New York City. It's at NYU. It's $20 for two days, which I think is a ridiculously cheap considering what you're getting. It is two full days of queer artists uh, writing, talking, creating these. It has amazing keynote speakers. Paige Braddock, who is an acquaintance of mine, is going to be there. Um, just some extraordinary lesbian comics coming. Um, we've had in the past, we've had Alison Bechdel do keynotes there. And you have to understand we're at the point right now. This is it. This is the moment where we can still access the first generation of queer comic artists in America. Mm -hmm. We still have Howard Cruz. We still have folks who were there, uh, you know, uh, Trina Robbins. We have these folks and, and, and uh, you know, Mary Wings and stuff, people like that. We have these folks here and we can talk to them and talk about their initial experiences back in the 60s and 70s trying to create spaces for gay comics because we haven't lost them yet. And Queers and Comics is about getting them to talk on record and recording that for posterity mm -hmm. so that we can have those stories and never lose them. And Queers and Comics is an extraordinary event. I highly, highly recommend it. It's a conference, not a con. Uh, we are, we're all going to be talking about the creation, the history of queer comics all over the world. There will be a, a metric ton of queer comics there for sale. And it's going to be an amazing two days. It's, it's Friday and Saturday, 17th. It's just absolutely extraordinary. I hope you will all be there because it is, it's historical. That's excellent. I mean, that just sounds like a great space for fans of LGBTQ comics and just LGBTQ fans in general to just congregate and discuss these works. So absolutely. And also, it's just amazing to have like people who have like uh, were there at the beginning, like you said, like first generation people, like talk about those stories too. Yes, one of the best things I ever did was I got to sit in a panel watching five of the earliest lesbian comics comic artists in America talking and they were hilarious because they all knew each other of course <laughs> back in the day and, and several of them didn't speak for years so they would talk about like the feuds they had it was great it was so magnificent and I just walked up and I, I gave a, a one of our old ALC books to each one of them I said I'm doing for Japanese comics what you did for American queer comics and and thank you so much and I just got to meet them and talk to them and and, and tell them how much I really, really admire them. That's incredible. And that meant a lot to me because these are people who are, you know, I honor as my ancestors as surely as, as my own uh, family, you know? Mm -hmm. they, they're they the people who, who hoed that rocky ground so that people uh, who are drawing, you know, lesbian comics today can can have somewhere to, to plant the seeds, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to head there myself one of these days. So, but I definitely encourage everyone to go there. It's Oh, wow, it's at SVA? God damn. Yeah. I went to SVA. Yeah, I got a... Ah, oh, yeah. That's a good that's excuse, a good isn't it? SVA, I want to say, SVA has been honestly put out some of the best artists, yeah. queer artists that I know, and people I've known from the Yuri world and been in and out. 
Um, and at least one of the old SVA folks is on the Steven Universe team. I mean, Rebecca Sugar was from right. SVA. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Hillary Florida. Yeah. So uh, some of the best artists I know went to SVA, and I met a lot of them back in the day when they were young and still going to college. And now I'm watching them become the most amazing consummate professionals and, and just being everywhere. I just love it so much. Yeah, SVA was a great place. Yeah. For, like, queer students and... You know, they had so yeah. many great events to celebrate yeah. queer art and queer comics and queer yeah. animation. So that yeah. was a great space to be. So, uh, yeah, like, it's in New York, guys. Like, uh, just head over there. Like, that, I, I can wholeheartedly recommend that's, that's a great community to be a part of. And then I, I, it, it I, absolutely is, yeah, I, I, I want to attend this conference. Uh, hopefully I can make myself, make my way out there soon. I hope you can. I hope you do. And I hope you'll come over and say hi. We're doing a history of queer manga panel Saturday evening. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. Yeah. So it'll have, uh, Rika Takashima is going to be there to talk about lived history. And then we have um, Yukari Fujimoto, who is a teacher at Waseda. Uh, we have James Welker, who's a very dear friend of mine, a professor at uh, Kanazawa University, Akanagawa University, excuse me. And we have, um, oh, I've got a blank on her name, Naika Nagaika-san, and I can't remember her first name, and I apologize. And she's also a professor in Japan and, and the three uh, the three of them are going to talk about it from an um, academic perspective and Rika will talk about lived history and uh, and I get to be the moderator and how exciting is that? That sounds incredibly exciting. <laughs> it is. I love I love moderating panels where people who are smarter than I am get to talk. <laughs> I love that. Well, I, you're incredibly witty and well informed and <laughs> so I think you. <laughs> Thank you. You're great. You'd make great I'm pre <laughs> But. Yeah, you're doing so much, so many amazing events just in May alone. Oh, I know, too many. But honestly, this year, the whole year, this is, what, this is what I'm doing this year. The rule is this year and next year, I promote 100th anniversary and then and the book, and then I do nothing for the rest of my life. That's, that's <laughs> the goal. I go back to watching anime and writing reviews. Do it big this year. I mean, yes. you got it. It's the hundred year year. If I get the book out, if I could get the book out in twenty twenty, that would be ideal. <laughs> that would get the end of the hundredth anniversary, and then that would be it. I could just I'll eat on that for the rest of my life, you know. Mm -hmm. But this is the year to do all the big stuff. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I, there's yeah. a lot to celebrate. Oh, and Crunchyroll, I'm gonna be at the Crunchyroll Expo for the first time, and that's I'm, that's gonna be nuts because I'm squeezing that in right before the tour. So, so I'll be flying out to San Jose and then flying, then going down to LA and flying out from there to be on the, the Yuri tour. So it's gonna be crazy balls, but it should be great. And I've never been out to the Crunchyroll Expo, so I'm really excited about being part of that too. And I'll be talking at the University of Michigan and Michigan State in October. That's excellent. Yeah, so many opportunities for everyone out there to meet Erica, to learn more about the history of Yuri and LGBTQ manga and comics. And yeah, just keep an eye out for all these opportunities to, you know, attend. I will probably pop up at a con. Your, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm trying <laughs> to get to all of them, like, you know, and, and be on podcasts. And I appreciate so very much that you let me uh, join you here today. Thank you for coming because on. Because I really, really wanted to, uh, I want to get my, my, I want to be able to proselytize Yuri <laughs> to everybody because I'm the Yuri Bodhisattva, I'm the Yuri Apostle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, you want to be the Gonagai of Yuri. Yes, well, that's what I want to be. I want to be the lesbian Gonagai <laughs> when I grow up. That's absolutely what I want. I want to set a legacy that's so crazy that people can't stop playing with it. You know, that's, that's what I want. I worship Gonagai. I would, I would, that would be one of, definitely one of my goals is meeting him just to tell him how much 
he's he's uh, inspired me. Oh yeah, that was amazing. You know, I, I attended the panel at anime that he was at. Uh, celebrate Cutie oh, Honey. It was a you. it was a really good time. But now, wow. now, Erica, thank you so much for coming on and spreading the word about Yuri and telling, uh, going into so much history, especially of the fandom. And it's just incredible conversation to have with you. It's really, it was such a pleasure. And honestly, thank you both so much. I'm really, really very, very pleased to have had a chance to talk to you and all your listeners. And um, it was a lot of fun. And you're great, by the way. Oh, thank you. you your comments <laughs> are fantastic. I mean, you know, I'm on a, pa- a podcast. I don't always know what it's going to be like. I've had people go, so... Okay, keep going. <laughs> you're great. You're really, you're a really fantastic interviewer. I just want to let you know that. Oh, thank you. It means a lot for you to say that. I try my best. Like I, I try to do the research and I try to ask interesting questions that guests haven't. You do, asked you before. do, and you do a great job. So I'm glad you had a good time too. But I Erica, you know, for people to keep up with what you're doing, to hear about all the new cons that you're going to, or even just reach out to you to talk about Yuri and just you know engage with you in conversation. Where can the good people find you? Uh, you can always, always, always find me. Um, you can look me up on okazu.yurikon.com or uh, if you go to yurikon.com, there's a contact button on the top bar. You can reach me there uh, if you want to email me. You can find me at okazuyuri on Twitter where I appear to be living 24 <laughs> seven. Uh, we have a Yurikon uh, group on Facebook. We have a Yurikon Discord, which is currently uh, functioning well. So if you're an asshole, don't join because we don't want that. But uh, if you're a nice person, come on and stop by. And you can find all those links on the links page on yurikon.com. And basically, you can find me just about anywhere. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of omnipresent, I have to admit. I, I will, will honestly say that. And look me up. Say hi. If I'm at an event where you're going to be, definitely come by and say hi. I absolutely love meeting the folks who've uh, read our reviews and our research and, and, and listen to us on podcasts. We, all of the folks at Eurycon, we just are really, really happy to meet uh, the fandom. So don't be intimidated. I know sometimes I come off as really sort of, you know, intimidating. I'm not, I'm really a nice and proud person. I almost have never, almost never hit anybody. So. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So yeah, definitely reach out to you guys, but actually I will sign off here in a moment. But before we do that, we never actually uh, explain what Okazu means. Uh, so Erica, <laughs> would you like to go into the definition of Okazu? Like... <laughs> sure. Sorry. I keep coughing up. <laughs> so, so Okazu is when you eat, a Japanese bento. You have lots of little dishes, mm-hmm. and and those are called okazu. They're they're ap- we think of them as appetizers, right? They're not. It's not one big main dish, right? There's lots of little thing, little nibbles, right? So there's that. Um, okazu is also slang for lesbian sex because it's yep. not the main course. <laughs> so when I started okazu, I wanted a name, and and Rika told me about that, and I thought, well, that's perfect because it's going to be little nibbles of information. And it's all about lesbian sex. So Okazu is the perfect name for my blog. So that's why I call it Okazu. It's lots of little tidbits of information about Yuri. And that's awesome. And I hope this podcast is an appetizer for all you listeners out there to go out and explore and enjoy the full buffet of uh, information and the uh, works themselves that is in the Yuri genre. Yeah, and, and we are this week going to hit our 4,000th post. We have a lot of content there. I know it's very intimidating, but there's categories that make it kind of make sense. And, and by all means, please, you know, explore around Okazu. And if you have any questions, uh, give me a buzz. We're always glad to 
to take, you know, questions from folks who, who can't find stuff. <laughs> Cause there's a lot and I do have pretty good navigation and there's search and everything, but you know, you know, I know how it gets. Um, and uh, thank you so much again. I really, really, really appreciate you having me on today. Thank you. Thank you once again to Erica for coming on the show. That was an incredible conversation and super awesome to talk about the where the fandom began and how it's evolved over the years and the state of Yuri as it is now. But I want to give some community shout-outs just to also spread the word of some great places and some great people you should follow if you want to learn more about Yuri. Erica, of course, being one of them. We mentioned before... Uh, the Akazu blog and the Yurikon site, but I'll throw that out there once again that, you know, when I was researching Yuri, trying to learn more about it, I was reading Erica's blog where she has extensive reviews of so many different Yuri titles in addition to great pieces exploring different aspects of Yuri history, like why the Catholic school old girls school is such a prominent setting kind of the history of mental abuse or people with mental illness in yuri manga and some of the problematic evolution of that trope in the genre she's got some great essays on akazu and some great reviews but also her yuri essay section on yurikon is a great really organized way to kind of learn about Yuri step by step. You could really teach an entire course just going through that entire page and looking at all the articles linked on there just in order. It's like a real classroom syllabus. So if you really want a in-depth course walkthrough of Yuri, definitely head on over to that as well. But also, if you're in the mood to watch videos and it kind of prefer interpreting and enjoying information that way, the YouTuber Zaria is pretty much the queen of Yuri on anime YouTube. And her essays and videos on Yuri, its history, and also select Yuri series and what makes them so good or bad in certain cases is really great. I really enjoy watching her videos. And right now she has started a new campaign to do this Yuri 101 project to celebrate the 100 years of Yuri and also really give a comprehensive breakdown of its history on YouTube. And she's asking for so a little bit of financial support on her Patreon to kind of make that possible because it is an editing extensive thing. So definitely, if you want to see that project really be brought to life, I would highly encourage you to go watch Saria's videos and uh, support her Patreon because she makes some great work. She's pretty much the only one on Anime YouTube who's really doing a great job spotlighting Yuri. So uh, definitely go check her out. And then finally, my last community shout out is not really Yuri related, but I think it fits in to some of the themes we were talking about. Recently, Blue Flag on Manga Plus finally had all of its backlog chapters filled in, and I saw so many people just rush to read it at the minute that happened, one of which was Lost Teeth over on Twitter, who writes for the ANN column This Week in Anime, and they did a great like tread where they were going through the series and kind of reacting to things live but and one thing that they got, got to and that like made me ha realize and made me decide okay now i have to read this today i can't 
put off reading it until later, was when they were spotlighting the character of Mami Yakihara in the series and just showing these amazing panels from the manga that where she was going on this incredible rant that was just breaking down all of this cultural sexism that informs stereotypes of characters like her. And that was just incredible. And the minute I read that, the minute I saw those screencasts that lost Steve Hook, I knew that I had to read the series tonight, lest I get spoiled on all the other greatness that Blue Flag has to offer. And trust me, having read and caught up to it, Blue Flag is just an incredible ride. And then later, Lost Teeth made this tread that really broke down the presentation of Mami Yagihara and how Kaito really exploits your preconceptions, your assumptions of what a character like her is supposed to be like, and really makes you think about kind of the internalized sexism we have for characters like Mommy, people like Mommy in our daily lives, and how that's kind of messed up our ideas of relationships between people, and it's just so really satisfying because there ha isn't Another character like Mommy, there's not another scene like that scene in Blue Flag where Mommy is just going on her incredible rant that really takes down cultural sexism in such a satisfying and on-point way. And Lost Teeth Tread does a really great job exploring how Kaito kind of uses her in such a refreshing way to kind of make you think about your assumptions about other people and how that's been informed by culture, by society, and like to challenge those ideas and making assumptions of other people. So that's a great trend. I recommend reading that and I recommend reading Blue Flag because it is an incredible read in terms of representation, in terms of the presentation of its characters and playing with preconceptions, stereotypes and what you expect a character to be. Like, Blue Flag is just a beautiful experience, so I'm very, I'm really, really excited that the backlog's been filled, and more people can, like, read it properly, and also I'm really looking forward to seeing what the ending of this series is like, and uh, in general, I really uh, would encourage you to follow Lost Teeth, because they always do some good treads on the series on Manga Plus and Shonen Jump that are really fun to read. But yeah, Erica, Zaria, Lost Steve, definitely check all those guys out. They're doing really great work. They got really great perspectives. And I highly encourage you to follow and learn from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those all definitely sound like really great picks. And uh, we'll definitely leave links to everything that Lama's talked about in the show notes for this episode. Most definitely. But that does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks, discussing the history of Yuri and Honor and Centennial Anniversary. And now let's just wrap up with where you can find us. But before we do that, we should mention once again that our Patreon is live, that you can get early access to podcasts like this on our Patreon a few days in advance if you pledge at an early tier. You can also get bonus podcasts if you pledge at the $5 level. 
and you'll get a new monthly podcast every month. For the month of April, we released the long-awaited Manga Fights Episode 6 on Monster Girls, where Wix and Ethan battled it out on Monster Girl Manga. What were the best ones? What are the best moments? What are the worst ones? And in that case, it was uh, unanimous, but I won't spoil which series they particularly load. Also, some very fun uh, fights, including what would Vior look like as a monster girl? So definitely <laughs> check that out. It's a fun time. I'm glad to finally share it with the world. But what is really exciting is that as a $5 patron, you can help us choose our monthly bonus pod, what the topic will be about, and what you'll want to listen to. So you can choose this month between four different topics. That time I got reincarnated as Yamsha, the comic, sexism in Weekly Shonen Jump, and the history of manga magazines. So, if you feel passionate about us doing a podcast in one of those podcasts, then pledge to the $5 tier, make your voices heard by voting in our patrons poll, and then by the end of the month, we will make a podcast on the winner. So definitely look forward to that. Um, so actually more, just, just a little more talk on the Patreon real quick. So cor correct me if I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll edit this out. So if you pledge $2, you'll get early access to podcasts. You will indeed. You'll get early access to all podcasts that are completed early before their intended release date. Whether that be a full few days in advance or even in some cases, a full week in advance. All right, good. Just wanted to be sure because, uh, so after this episode, you know, we have a really cool interview with Joey Weiser, creator of both Merman and the upcoming Ghost Hog comic series, or I should say, uh, volume. But, uh, yeah, so we have that recorded. And, uh, uh, as far as our schedule goes, we have that episode coming up basically the week after we have put this episode out. Uh, but yeah, so if you, if you're interested in becoming a patron, uh, you definitely want to sign up for that $2 tier because if you do, you might, you might get that interview a little earlier, M maybe a week earlier. I'm not sure. Maybe you'll definitely get that interview early if you become at least a $2, uh, patron. So that's something to look forward to. Wink. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, really, really looking forward to uh, to seeing the Patreon grow, hopefully. Um, at the time of this recording, uh, we're, we're actually recording this like right on the day it's, uh, you know, being posted and put up live just to kind of put the cat out of the bag. But uh, but no, yeah, uh, we we will definitely be talking more about the Patreon in, in the coming weeks here as as it continues to to go live. But uh, yeah, we, you have a lot of stuff to look forward to. Uh, coming from that i'm really excited about i'm I'm actually like really excited about the patreon so uh, i can't wait to talk about that more in the future but uh for now yep uh that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks so go check that out um but yeah now we'll just get into uh, where you can find us and uh we'll start with you lum where can the people find you you can find me at lum ramayasha on twitter 
and as Lumiyasha on a variety of places like Annualist and Animation Relation, wherever there's a Lumiyasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews and find my other podcasts, including hashtag LumSquad on all-comic.com. And if you want to support my art, my writing, just anything else I do outside of the Mung Rabbits podcast, you can uh, throw me a tip over at Kofi, Kofi slash Lamariasha, or my personal Patreon, Patreon slash Lamariasha. And any uh, additional funds and tips would definitely be a real help. So thank you. Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely go follow Lum and uh, check out all their other stuff. Uh, I personally have been really enjoying uh, Lum Squad, or at least at least the episode that's that's out at the time of this recording. So I'll definitely keep listening to that. But uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Colton, by the way. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I host a few other podcasts such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast. Uh, even though it's on a bit of a hiatus, uh, we still have a huge backlog of episodes over at GintaLifeLessons.wordpress.com. So if you're a fan of Gintama, go check that out. Uh, but if you're a fan of Detective Conan or Case Closed, whatever it's called over here, I don't know, sometimes. <laughs> uh, but if you're a fan of that series, uh, go check out One Podcast Prevails over at OnePodcastPrevails.com. Uh, it's basically a show uh, where I record with my friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast about Detective Conan, uh, the manga, as it's released by Viz Media. Um, I really enjoy recording that show in particular, so please go check that out again over at OnePodcastPrevails.com. Uh, but as for All Comic and the podcast specifically, uh, you want to go to all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode of the podcast uh, first. And uh, you can also follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks in particular, uh, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast uh, or you should subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. It's where we post, uh, you know, different excerpts of the podcast, such as different news pieces we talk about, uh, different, uh, you know, all of our retrospectives and interviews and whatnot, and even some exclusive content every once in a while. So again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Um, email us anything over at manga mavericks at gmail.com. You know, uh, what did you think about all the news we talked about this episode? Uh, you know, uh, do you have anything you want to say to Erica uh, about anything, uh, you know, her and Lum might have talked about on the show today? Um, you know, do you have any Yuri manga that you think we should cover on the show? Uh, any manga that you're reading that you want to tell us about? Basically, email us anything about manga or the podcast in general, again, at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, that really helps the visibility of our show. It really helps our show grow in general. Uh, so if you have the time, uh, maybe maybe go do that for us. Uh, leave, leave us a rating. That's always nice to see. But that's going to be about it for the show. Uh, kind of a long one, but you know we can get away with that every once in a while. Um, and so this has been episode 86 of the podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 87. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.